What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Dr. Funk Live podcast. Thank you guys so much for subscribing on YouTube, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Podbay FM. Thank you guys also for donating if you choose. Today, we have an amazingly wonderful guest. It'll be the one and only Michael B. Michael Bland of the MPG, Soul Asylum, Dr. Mambo's Combo, and so much more. You guys are in for a real treat that are joining us live and for watching listening and watching on the playback. It's going to be a really, really great, fun show. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I had to pull this one out. From 1993, the Universal Amphitheater, which isn't around anymore, actually my first show, uh, so my first concert shirt that I got from the Act One tour, had to make sure to pull this one on. Um, it's interesting because I was discussing that earlier. Good, and just remember guys, we're gonna be taking your questions throughout the show. We may be missing it uh, just because I don't wanna interrupt and do it, but uh, ask again if we haven't gotten to it, but um, that's just how we're gonna roll with it tonight. Without further ado, let me get our special guest of honor up in here. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Michael B. Hello. Michael, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. Just sitting here in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. <laughs> I was uh, I was, I was uh, peeling some pearl onions a little bit earlier. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, that's how's the weather over there this time of year? Because over here it's been ridiculously hot in California. Oh well, today it's very humid outside. And um, I don't like that. No, I'm <laughs> so with you in the house, waiting for waiting for it to recede, whichever comes first. I got re I start up rehearsal with Soul Asylum next week for a gig we have in September, so I'm gonna have to get out there in it. And awesome. What? It'll calm down by then. Sorry. Awesome. Now, where is this gig gonna take place in September? It's supposed to be in Somerset, Wisconsin, on September 26th. Okay. And. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, you know, with the COVID and everything, uh, we got to be be real strenuous about uh, details like, you know, disinfectant and masks and gloves, and you know, and I don't know if you noticed, but in the Midwest, a lot of people have been real laid back about <laughs> about uh, spreading germs and whatnot, and uh, you know, I'm, right. I mean, I'd be lying if I if I if I said I'm not cautiously optimistic that it'll go all right uh you know i mean but it's real out there anybody who says covid19 is a hoax uh I, I don't know what to tell you i i know people who have had it i know i, I uh, my co-host on my show music politics dan spiffy newman he was uh in the hospital for 23 days 11 of them he was uh intubated he was in, in an induced wow. coma so you can't tell me COVID's not real. I don't care who you are. I, I was the one, I was one of a few people who helped him keep his sanity while he was in the hospital. So, yeah, I know what it's about, and I'm not playing around with nobody about it. <laughs> and your show, it, it air, you guys do it live on Tuesday night, right? Tuesday nights, it's 7 o'clock Central Standard Time, yeah. And we, I mean, Andre Simone, he's probably been a guest on your show, I'm imagining. Have you had Andre? Yeah, he's yes, been to our show. Sonny made a brief appearance a couple weeks ago. You know, so the people drop in, but it's not like, you know, it's not a, it's, 
it's probably a little more formal than your situation. And I'm not conflating or comparing the two. I'm just saying, like, we we have a lot of uh, scientific people and uh, people involved in, in civics, you know, in government that come on the show. And uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll not... Not so much a visit. It it's not so much a vehicle for uh, for enjoyment as it is talking about like kind of hard stuff to discuss in this day and age. Absolutely, we feel like we're doing a service, and um, and uh, we're gonna keep on with it for 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 a little while until it um, you know uh, kills itself of uh, out of obsolescence, I suppose. <laughs> Hopefully it's going to go on for a while because sometimes we need to have conversations like that for sure. Yes, sir. So, yeah. Now, this is it. We'll go for the first question. Although what I want to ask first is, when did you first start getting into drumming and becoming a drummer? Is it something that, you know, you wanted to do from a little kid or how, how did it come to be before we start getting to the first questions from the audience? Um. Uh, really, it was. I mean, music has been a part of my life as long as I. From, from the moment I got into this world, music was, was with me. It's been my one constant friend and ally throughout. I'm fifty, fifty-one. I think I'll be fifty-two next March. Um, I, uh, it, so it, it was always calling my life. We had a p piano. My father played in church. My sisters all learned how to play. Some of them played in church. Uh, my mom even played a little bit, but. Uh, you know, it's not uncommon for, you know, for that to happen in in a black household. I, I don't know what, what happens otherwise, but I can only speak from my own experience. And those who, are, you know, a lot of black musicians start out, start out in church and then they, you know, they augment their career and they take steps out into the secular world and, you know, and then they, you know, hopefully flourish, you know. Uh, but I guess I would have to say, uh, my dad got me a kit when I was nine, but uh, I didn't. I couldn't keep it unless I took lessons. So he found me an instructor. His name is Floyd Thompson. He's still alive, still hanging out um, in Minnesota part of the time. But he he goes to Florida when it gets too cold. Um, and uh, he taught a lot of great drummers from from Minneapolis. Uh, Gordy Knutson is one of the one of my. Uh, I guess I would say peers, although Gordy was on the scene way before I even really got out. So, uh, but Gordy uh, did a lot of recording with, uh, let's see, if you ever heard of a guy named Ben Sidron from Wisconsin, or uh, he actually has been drumming with Steve Miller for like 20 years now. So uh, Gordy is a, a brilliant, brilliant drummer. And uh, we have a lot of similar viewpoints on it and uh, and and conceptually also, um, uh, like we play some things we do kind of the same, but um, he really was one of the dudes who paved the way for me to get in there and start swinging. Someone who literally paved the way and got me start started swinging was Bobby Mandel, who played with Alexander O'Neill. He played with the Jesse Johnson Review, and he was the original drummer in Doctor Mambo's Combo. He's the one who encouraged me to come down there and start sitting in with the band. And then he went away, uh, I think he went to Los Angeles or he went on tour with Alexander O'Neill and he asked me to cover for him. And um, during that time, I, I, we, uh, the band and I got to be very fond of one another and um, it must have been uh, Bobby's time in life to move on to bigger, better things. 
so that I had a place to uh, hone my craft, which is also the place where I, where I met Prince eventually, which would have been in 19, late 1988, after the Love Sexy show. And you were, that's another thing that someone, that's the first question that someone's going to have. I'm going to put that up. Um, well, that's not that one. We're going to go into it. Um, here it is. We'll go to that one as well. Question for Michael. Why do you think Prince shows him to be the drummer? We can go back to 88 and that experience, but. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess I never asked him why. I just, <laughs> I was just uh, focused on being sufficient in my duties. Uh, I think I, I wanted to just be a professional. It was what I had been working towards as a musician without realizing it. But whatever he saw or whatever he felt, he uh, only, I don't know. I think he, the only time we talked about it was he's like, you're so young to be so good and you're only going to get better, you know? So I'm sure that he felt, I, well, my feeling is that he felt that I could learn and grow. And, um, and that, I mean, at 19, that's, my comprehension of what music was and what it could do has always been a little bit advanced. I have perfect pitch. I don't know why, but I understand music on a level that a lot of people do not. I don't know why God chose to put that in me, but he also chose to put that in Sonny Thompson. So once he combined Sonny, Sonny's force with mine, he had a, a, a very uh, powerful nucleus, which is why we appeared several times after we had been fired and everything, we resurfaced on some records and did some things because we developed a sort of shorthand way of working together. And if he needed to do something on impulse, often he'd call me and Sonny. And I'd say the last session that I, that I did for him was probably two months before he passed away. Wow. So, yeah. Can you elaborate more on that? Just... Because I don't think too many people knew that, that your last session was that that close to his passing. Um, <laughs> uh, if you can. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean I, I didn't know a whole lot about what was happening at the time. As a matter of fact, Mono Neon was uh, playing bass, but he was in the control room. I never even saw him or spoke to him. We just started recording, and he started playing. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I, that's, uh, I wonder who that is. Okay, uh, great. And uh, Adrian Crutchfield was also there. And, and Prince. It was just the four of us. Um, Prince was engineering himself that day. And um, I mean, it's a, uh, I don't, it was an interesting experience, but it was not um, focused in a way where I felt like, uh, like I, I, I knew what was happening. Um, and I think he realized that. At, I mean, I don't think that it was a, a successful venture that day. And uh, part of it was they had things set up in a very specific way. In, um, in the drums were set up there. Kirk had been recording with them, and it was set up for Kirk to play, and they were doing something kind of different. So it was difficult for me to acclimate uh, and get around and play things comfortably. And also, Prince was changing everything. He was trying a lot of things and nothing was really working. I was like, maybe it's me. <laughs> you know, but I'm just like, hey, you know, maybe you should probably, he said, well, Kirk's used to playing that kid. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, you should do what works. 
and he gave me a copy of Hit and Run Volume Two, I think, and uh, and that was the last time I I, I saw him. Uh, while he was talking to me, I, he looked gaunt, more so than usual, thin, uh, like he had maybe been in the studio so much that he had not been taking care of himself or sleeping. Uh, but it didn't dawn on me until the day I heard that he passed that maybe he was in a, in a, in a completely different space. I just thought, well, he gets like that. He gets thin and he gets focused and he, you know, that's just his M.O. He, he Prince, it was like he lived in this studio, you know, but it was not being overworked. I don't, I don't believe it was him being overworked. I really uh, think that um, something else may have been happening on the inside. I mean, I, I guess I probably shouldn't even speculate, um, but irrespective of what may or may not be. Uh, I, I, in my mind, I've gone back over that moment many times to see if there was something there that I didn't pick up on. And I can't qualifiably say that. Hmm. I, I, can't, I can't say that. I, I would be bearing false witness if I said, I could see it in his eyes. He would have no. No. I, I mean, it only occurred to me after the fact. And then I, I, I was like, if, how come I did I see it? Was was I meant to see what was happening? I, I I was not conscious or aware on that level in that moment. So I, I don't even know what I'm saying about it right now, except that it was, I, I was, it was a shock. It's still now. It's like it don't feel like a like the right thing happened to me. And that's the perception of it. And that was probably with the Black is the New Black sessions, what you were describing it as well. Could be. It was an instrumental jazz sort of oriented situation. Is that what that is? Right. That's what they were doing. And then for tracks like Rough Enough and whatnot. But yes, that was for Black is the New Black. Because with Adrian being involved and Mono Neo, Mono Neon being involved as well. Okay. That's you very cool. Me. I don't really, uh, <laughs> I, I don't keep up so much. I, I, I'm I'm on. Oh, you, you drop a lot of knowledge, so I'm glad to drop a little bit of more a morsel of information. No, I'm. Hey, listen. Whatever you can teach or tell me, I'm interested. I'm interested in it. Cool. Mm -hmm. And my first uh, viewing of you was on, and I'm, I don't know how well this went over with Prince or if you remember it, but was a show long before TMZ, a current affair, where. They went, went into bunkers and they interviewed you to talk about Prince and whatnot. Now, did he get back to Prince about that? Did he go, hey, Michael, when it comes to stuff like that, can you not do it? Or, you know, it didn't matter. I don't remember him curious. ever um, doing that to me. Uh, okay. But, um, I mean, a lot of people don't know. A lot of interviews that happened in the early to mid-90s, especially once Levi sort of retired, from, from the situation, I, I, I had sort of had to take up the slack and people would call asking for interviews and he'd tell, talk to, tell him to talk to Michael. Like I began being kind of <laughs> the spokesperson and I just, I mean, you kind of get a sense for what's okay to say and what's not to say. And, um, you know, you just, I just did what I could not to, not to mess up. I tried to say the right thing and not the wrong thing. <laughs> It can get that way with him, especially. 
do you even remember like the first track that you not even played live but recorded with him do you the remember grand, that? the grand progression yes oh his father was uh was in the studio that day i think it was like a saturday and he just called me in for a session and i hadn't been in the studio yet i had been there and visited the sound stage i'd seen the atrium and all of that but i hadn't been in the studio and that was the first day it was like early afternoon on a saturday his father was in the studio with him and he said, I, I want my father to meet you. And that in and of itself was what tripped me out. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. Because um, I, I knew how, I had a sense and, and knew what kind of respect he had for his father as a musician. And they had collaborated on many songs. Um, and um, I tried to follow what was happening on the track. But um, it was difficult to figure out what was going on. And... I I stopped some at some point during the first take, and I said, "I'm sorry, I'm having trouble figuring out what's happening here, because there are instruments coming in and going out, and it sounded like um, very spare. It sounded like a band kind of learning a song." And I said, "It it seems," and I I said as much. I said, "It sounds like something spontaneous is happening." Well, he says, "Oh yes. Well, this this song is for a movie." And uh, in the movie, that's what's happening. So play it that way. And that's what I did. And I still left the studio with, with a question mark <laughs> in my head. I'm like, whoa, what did I just do? And uh, But some point but, uh, during that session, I got up. I, I said, uh, I, 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 have to go, go, I have to use the bathroom. Could you excuse me for a minute? Oh, sure. And I walked all over, and it was on a Saturday, so there was no staff. So I'm like, "Well, where do, where's the bathroom? Where, where, uh, you know?" So I looked around, and I went upstairs, and um, I walked through this stained glass door, and I was, "Oh, okay, all right." And I, I don't know why I wasn't more mindful of where I was going, but I ended up in the apartment part of Prince's office, and I'm standing at the commode, <laughs> and I'm looking around at all these, you know, frilly you know, uh, custom-made things, and and it, it hits me. I'm like, I'm in Prince's personal bathroom. And so I flushed and washed my hands and got out of there as quick as I could. I was like, oh, uh, all right. And uh, I I don't know if he knows that that ever, ever happened or not, but that was uh, so strange i just like i was so kind of just i gotta be where and i just kept walking i never saw a, a, an obvious place to go so uh that's the first time i think i've ever told that story in, in public <laughs> awesome the grand progression that was it it was supposed to be in graffiti bridge but um he decided he he liked still would stand all time better so that's what it makes happened. sense yeah it's close to it um Here's another question we're going to have. And of course, we're going to jump around to different time periods or not. But Prince is also a good drummer. What did he admire about? What did you admire about Prince's drumming skills? Oh, yeah, that is what they meant, isn't it? Um, uh, he was very uh, creative. He played things in a way that that were informative of, of uh, the great Dave Garibaldi, who's the drummer from Tower of Power. I know that he and Morris were big fans 
of Tower of Power when, when they were younger. And Garibaldi influenced their style. I mean, even the, the drum program on 777-9311. I think that the factory preset of it was called Garibaldi 1 or something like that. Like that was some kind of attempt. I know that Prince modified the pattern and he did some different things with it. But um, he, uh, it's it's this, I guess you call it uh, independence. Like he's very good at um, playing counter rhythms with his, with his, with his limbs. Like one thing would be doing this and the other thing would be doing that. And uh, he was, yeah, it just seemed to flow naturally for him. And um, yeah, he, I, and um, sometimes he would um, ask me to do things that I didn't immediately understand, but uh, I always, took a swing at it after I got over my nerves. I was very um, nervous about messing up. I don't like to make mistakes. I never have. Even since I was a kid with music, I, I was already like, I, 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 making mistakes is not something I, I want to I do. So I, I was usually a very prepared musician, but you can't prepare for the moment, just a spontaneous moment where somebody's asking you to step outside of what you normally do and try something completely alien to your understanding. So he was good at that. He was good at throwing me curveballs. But as we worked more and more together, uh, as you would expect, a, a lot of kinetic energy can build up between musicians and where you kind of know what they're asking for. It, you know, you get enough information to go on and you can get closer to the target straight away. But um, early on, he would always say, I, he'd ask for something and I'd, <laughs> I'd pause and he'd say, Michael, put your hands down. Just play. He's like, you, you can't find the street till you find the city. Like it's you explore. You gotta, you have to, you have to get into it to see where you're at. You gotta, you have to lose yourself before you can find yourself. And uh, that was very, uh, very valuable information for me. It's, I've used it to this day in my career. Wise. Yeah. Wise. Now it comes to drumming skills. An interesting question that we had beforehand. The drum intro, intro to shh is iconic, especially the way you play it. Have you ever seen Prince attempt to play it himself? No. Uh, it's funny because um, <laughs> I don't know how deep to get, man. Uh, I mean, First off, we had an original. The original version of was did it come out on Tevin Campbell's "I'm Ready" record or did it not? I'm not sure if it it appeared. It did. It did. Yes. And what happened was uh, we had the NBA party in '93, and Tevin was supposed to. Prince was expecting everybody was going to sit in, so we prepared. Uh, shush, break it down, and. Um, Tevin, I think, said, I want to sing uh, Can We Talk? And we didn't know that one. So we knew that Prince was going to be singing it probably at the at the party. So we were playing, and he was like, this is boring. We need to put some breaks in this. We need to, you know, we need to get this amped up. So uh, that's what happened. It's like, I'm, well, he started playing these punches. He's like, fill that up. Put some stuff in there. You know, we hadn't recorded it like this, mind you. This was an experiment taking place the day before <laughs> and right. um, 
that wow. live version still irks me a little bit because I, I hadn't figured out what I was really trying to say. Um, so I was happy that we got a second chance to record it for the Gold Experience record because by that time, we had been out and I think we had played it several times by then. So my mind was clear. I knew what I was trying to get out of the composition, like what it needed for me to, to make it something more spectacular. And uh, so I'm glad that the version on the Gold Experience came out because that's really what I meant. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It doesn't take anything away from that beautiful experience, uh, the uh, the NBA All-Star Game weekend and that version of it, which was some people's first uh, time hearing it, just like with Days of Wild and a lot of those other songs that sure. came out. Mm -hmm. And Days of Wild being the track that it is and how funky it is, like just in these songs, you had so many songs during that time period and it wouldn't even make it onto the gold experience. Was was that something that you wish did make it out, make it on there? Although the live version is far superior than the studio version, no disrespect. Well, here's what happened is that we heard the original version and we all, it was a head scratcher for us. It was like, I don't understand this. And it must have got back to Prince because we started working on it like the very next day after <laughs> after we were kind of like, I don't get it. So we, we, we worked on it in rehearsal and it became a fan favorite. And um, that was, I think that was Lenny Kravitz's uh, favorite Prince song around that time. Because he'd come to the gig, y'all playing Days of Wild tonight. Uh, Lenny, I Prince plays what he wants, man. We don't know. <laughs> and we'd get into it. He'd be back there with them troglodyte boots to groove into it. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's uh, there. Yeah, there is a version that came out on Crystal Ball, right? Yes, a okay. live version, yes. Edited from a Paisley Park jam, but yes, it is on there. Okay. But that's the version that we love. And of course, the beautiful experience version. We can understand why if it was going to be the, that studio version that uh, would have been on the gold experience, maybe it's good it was left out. I don't um, know. As to me, it was the, as, as the original track was, I, I just couldn't, I didn't just didn't understand what was happening. Right. With the sample of Peep the Technique and all that other stuff, the live version just far superior in so many different ways. We got strong. I mean, uh, some songs uh, don't translate in the studio, mm -hmm. you know, and vice versa. I mean, I'm, I'm actually going through that with Soul Asylum right now. We're, we're um, still uh, learning more music off of our new album, which is called Hurry Up and Wait. And it's, uh, it's out if anybody wants to buy it. I think it's a great record. It's the highest... Uh, charting Soul Asylum record since the mid '90s, so I think we did a, a stellar wow. at, at bringing uh, the band back in in fine form. Um, but um, the certain songs you play live, and it's like, uh, well, uh, wait a minute. Uh, it's like it, they they don't they just don't always translate the right. Way. Right. Yeah. So when it came to, sh did he ever, did he ever try to do it himself at all when it came to that solo or intro to it that no. you saw? Okay. Uh, I, you know, um, it, it's funny because I had a flashback. I saw that question come up and I, I had pause about responding to it. But uh, during the rehearsals for the nude tour, um, uh, 
Miko and Levi, at, at one point, they were like, man, you a bad dude, man. Let me tell you something. I don't remember which one said it, but they, they were like, man, Prince used to always go to, go behind the drums messing with Sheila. Like, Get off, you know. It's like, we ain't seen him go back behind the drums one time. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess there, there, it was a, that's some, you know, evidence of how he felt about it. And also, sometimes he would record drums to songs before I get there. Or uh, I remember a couple of songs he, he recorded by himself. And then he'd call me in to re-record and he'd be upset about it. He's like, you know, I don't even like my own drumming anymore. You hanging around. And I, ooh, okay. Uh, okay, I'll be in the atrium if you need me. <laughs> so that was his way of conveying a level of respect. But I mean, you know, it, he meant it in, uh, as a compliment in the highest order. I didn't really believe that, but I, I did have something that, that he, Wanted access to. I mean, that's what. That's why we were all there. We had something that he 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 wanted, that he felt he could use. God. Yeah. Now, definitely, like when it came to the MPG, we constantly hear from other members that it was one of his favorite bands. You guys would have so much fun. Of course, we hear that during Billy Jack Bitch, and towards the end of it, you hear him go, "Man, y'all some tight motherfuckers." That's you know, like. That's Sonny saying that. Yeah. Yeah. So that is Sonny. Talk that Mike. Yeah, and that I was Prince played that song for uh, for George Clinton. And George, what is that? That big old greasy drummer you got back then, man, he's killing it. I, yeah. <laughs> like George was just kind of all about it. Mm. I, I've, I've I've run into him a, a few times over the years. He he was always uh, just uh, just the nicest guy. To me, and he tried to. He tried to. Uh, actually, Gary Scheider tried to hijack me and Sonny for P-Funk one night hmm. at Bunkers, and uh, you know, like he took our numbers and our information. He had a, had a, a young lady who did that for him. Y'all need to come on and get on the mother's chip. Now it was in, in Bunkers' kitchen, and uh, I like Gary. I, I mean, what? <laughs> what are we gonna do on the mother's chip, man? I mean, it just you know that scene is just. I mean. That P Funk scene is just too kinky for me. That's all I can say about it. And I think Sonny, yeah, it probably felt the same, but he probably wouldn't admit it. <laughs> but it was like, we ain't that freaky. <laughs> George, George is a George is freaky, and the mothership is quite freaky. At least he wasn't like, yo, man, we gotta get you in the diaper. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've never been a funketeer. But I, I did play uh, I did play one time um, with uh, Parliament Funkadelic at the Glam Slam, actually. Mm -hmm. It was um, Tony Thomas that double booked himself or he had to go to Japan or something and they needed somebody to cover. Like, well, we need to get somebody who's going to be in Minneapolis. And they tracked me down to Doug Nelson's apartment. I don't know how they knew I was there, but they called and said, uh, uh, George Clinton wants you to play perform with him. Uh, next Thursday, they go FedEx a cassette, and of course the cassette was like a cassette of like Lige Curry playing bass, and Dennis Chambers on the drums. So I'm just like, man, how am I even going to touch that? <laughs> so I had about five days of intense listening time because I'm not a funketeer. I don't know that music back and forth 
Some people who don't even play instruments know P-Funk better than I know P-Funk. <laughs> they sing along and know when the arrangement, oh, here's where the guitar comes in. With, and I was act, asking uh, Blackbird McKnight at the sound check. I said, when does it flip back over on knee deep from that vamp? He, he was like, ah, I'm not sure, man. It just kind of happened in the spot. I mean, you just have to, you know, I mean, if I think of it, I'll let you know. But I, uh, that's all he gave me. So <laughs> on the gig, he actually, he nodded to me like two bars before we got there. He's like, and so I didn't miss it. But Eric Leeds and Atlanta Bliss played horns on that gig. And uh, Will Roger Troutman played keyboards a little bit. And, uh, oh, man, it was incredible. It, I mean, it was uh, amazing. Yeah, it was a, a, an experience, man. Really. But uh, now, man, I, a drummer playing with y'all got to be in shape. Three hours, three and a half. Like, man, it just the song just went on forever. At Soundcheck, we played Night of the Thumpasaurus people for probably a half an hour. Wow, that's how they go on. They now that's how they like it. For sure. And now, speaking speaking of costumes, someone had this one. Um, did you like wearing the creative costumes with the hats? <laughs> Actually, um, that's funny how that happened. When Prince met me, I had a hat on that I uh, I bought at a place called Global Village, Global Village, on the West Bank of the University, and I had gotten into buying these kind of sort of African hats, like Tams and whatnot. And so when he met me, he said, I like your hat. I said, oh, thanks. He said, is that your thing? I said, not really. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, it's like it's a good look for you. And in between him saying that and me, uh, Miko Weaver saying, man, you need to make it like this tall, like Jerome Braley, man, from, from, from Parliament Funkadelic. You need your hat like this big. And the wardrobe department that week <laughs> started just production on these hats. And then, you know, they were kind of, they took kind of my style, what I was wearing in the street, and just kind of magnified it to like comic book level. That's really what happened. So <laughs> that's the story of that. I would just imagine it would get hot. It's hot. I couldn't, really, I couldn't really, you know, none of that. And also getting in the limo, I had to kind of, you know, move my neck. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it was. It was it was fun for a while, but I got to the point where I just I was like, oh man! I mean, because if you wear hats that often, your hair suffers. Your hair doesn't grow the same kind of way. It's not getting any light. You you know, it's humid under there. It's not a good situation. So at some point, I don't remember, but T Bird uh, Tanya, who was Prince's uh, hairdresser at the time, she was like, "You got a lot of hair. What you want me to do with this?" I said, "I don't know, T Bird. I mean." It just sits underneath. Like, well, what if we give, you give it a little style? And she went to work on it, and she was like, "Ooh, I like this." I said, "Let's let Prince see it." And so, <laughs> so we let Prince see it, and then I got to have hair for the last two years and so, two two and a half maybe. At least Tanya made sure to cut your hair and have Prince see it afterwards, or else it may have been what happened with Morris. To where he was like, no, let me give you a haircut. Oh, I, I don't, I, I'm not even sure what, what you're referring to at this point. Well, Morris talked about how he wanted to like cut his hair and whatnot. And he's like, all right, let me shave your head. And that's how it happened during Days of Wild 
uh, live at Paisley Park, that version of it is, it was uh, Morris coming to him and letting him know he wanted to cut his hair. And he's like, I'll cut your hair for you. And that's something that Brown Mark told him you shouldn't have him do. So maybe it was a good idea that Tanya was cutting your hair first before showing it to Prince or else you may have been getting a cut. I understand. But most likely what would have happened is um, he would have just said, put that hat on and let's go. <laughs> right. She did you a favor. Yeah, for sure. She did, but it could have been. I didn't sanction that. Who told y'all to do that? You know, it, who knows? His house, his rules. <laughs> True. Now, we know with the power that you have with, sh with other songs, but of also the simplicity that you can bring to stuff to not be over the top, say, during the new tour when it came to Nothing, nothing Compares to You and other slower songs. You wouldn't you would play it just for the right um, tone. It wouldn't be over the top, but it would, it would hit still with those things. Is that something that you just knew how to do, or is it something that you had to go over with rehearsal with him? Just uh, curious. No, I'd, I'd had um, a fair amount of uh, experience in the studio and working as a freelance musician. So, uh, you know, it, it you start to get a concept for you speak a certain language and then, you know, if it's too colloquial, if it's too specific to a specific region, maybe you want if somebody wants a different region, like there's a difference between soul music, you know, from the West Coast and soul music from the Midwest. You know what I mean? Like there's a different language to speak. So they really I just did what I felt was appropriate unless somebody said otherwise. You know, if that makes sense. Okay. If, he, if he didn't like what was happening, uh, you, you could tell by his face. <laughs> so, you know, but I was always the the, the, the secret to, to being in that environment was being flexible minded. You, you, you just have to stay open. But you're also told that there's an impossible standard to maintain stay open but don't mess up so it's a you know it takes a very specific kind of personality that's why i say you know because i know the fans like to rate the players and whatnot and i'm like listen let me just say this once and for all that anybody who could hang with prince long enough for you to know about him was a stellar musician you, you know what i mean it's like i've said this before and i don't know how people take it or not or, or, or I don't know how people take it, but the truth is, is that a genius needs genius around them. You can't, you can't accomplish what Prince accomplished without having absolute, you know, like you, you're around for him to access. You are, are there to follow him on his creative journey. And not everybody can do that. You, you gotta have a, an understanding of what's going on that no matter how, how you the chops can't save you you got to understand you got to understand what's happening and so uh, you know i know when 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 we were let go and kirk came in a lot of people oh wow well, well, you know they gave him you know he there was a certain amount of grief about kirk taking over and so on and so forth but me and kirk are friends we've been friends since before either of us worked for prince and i always liked kirk's running myself and um, and I know what it takes to sit in that seat. And whoever did, if 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 
if if it extended longer than just a few minutes, you had something special to offer, Prince. So all the rating and all that, you know, I mean, I know it keeps people enthused and, you know, in a certain headspace, but the, the real deal is it takes a genius to work with a genius. Otherwise, he has no use for you. You know, he doesn't need somebody to tell him things that he already knows. He needs information of, of another kind, you know, uh, which is why, I mean, a lot of, <laughs> and boy, did he get it. Sonny and I were just jamming to get tones for the engineer uh, uh, on a recording session. In the, I can't remember what year that was, but I mean, it turned out to be 3121. We were just funking for fun. And the engineer was getting tones, and I saw Prince stepping in the airlock uh, of the studio, and he looked in, the, in he looked in the control room, and then he looked out where we were at, and he he high stepped it to that to that blue Stratocaster. Like, what, what, what key is this? What, what what are we doing? What are we doing, fellas? That, 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 we just grooving. We, I like this. Hold up, hold up. Wait a minute. And like that, we gave him another one. Me and Sonny looked at each other like Prince. <laughs> You know, but that's how it goes. You know, entering, uh, going on to those premises that any ideas you may uh, reveal or communicate, uh, that belonged to Prince. But Sonny yeah. and I, when we get together, we inspire each other so much that new music was always happening. Now is a loop of me and Sonny. Uh, <laughs> what else? Um, Rapop go to zipper. That's me and Sonny. There's a loop of me and Sonny in the middle of P control that he predicated that entire groove on. So, you know, I'm just saying it, we were we were there to do more than just what we were told. Prince, right. we were there as resources to keep his creativity moving in a certain kind of direction. That's I mean, that's why he would choose anyone, I think. Is that yeah. you give him something that that he can't get necessarily on his own. True. Now with thirty one twenty one, and how that came to be, there's there. I did. I think I've asked you this maybe a year or two ago on Facebook or whatnot. But there is a longer version of it. I know what you guys created, but there did end up being a longer version of it recorded, right? Which song? I'm sorry. Thirty one twenty one. I I don't. I, you know, I'm not even sure. I don't own the album, so I'm not sure what 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 made it on. I don't know if there's a, alternate versions or not. I just know. We funked for a while. <laughs> yeah. And he just kind of called the breaks out as we were recording. Like, I, we, oh, he's just like, okay, uh, breakdown. And we, do, 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 do. You know, he didn't tell us really what to do. It just meant do something. <laughs> and so what we did worked for him. And then we looked up and like, oh, it's the title track of the new record. Wow. All right. <laughs> well, you're welcome. You know, it couldn't happen awesome. to a nicer guy. <laughs> awesome. I believe there is a longer version of it. What someone, uh, another question that someone had was, it's kind of long winded, but I'll go towards the end because you talked about it. Um, the last tour for the Gold Experience uh, in Yokohama, Japan, what was the end of that tour like for you, being in such fine form with the band? Um. Did that happen during the summer? Because we I went think to Japan early. We went to Japan early, early in '96. Also, yeah. Is that what you're talking about? 
I think that's what he's talking about is early in 96, where it was like the final shows of this MPG band. Okay, yeah, that would have been it. And, and, and it certainly felt that way at the time. Um, I'm, maybe I, I missed the question. What, what, what were they asking? Like, how did you feel during that time about the band and about oh, things that were going on? That was a very uh, stressful time for everybody, I think. Um, he was still embroiled in battle with Warner Brothers. Um, uh, I think that uh, the experience was, was hard on all of us. We were becoming a, 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 a little bit, I don't know uh, another word for it, but maybe rebellious. Like we began, everybody was burned out, I think. And the stress of the situation he was going through kind of just trickled down. And um, that was really, those were the last times we actually performed together. You're right. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a little rough. I, I remember because um, it took a longer time than normal for the equipment to arrive in Japan. And um, we had to stop rehearsing a little earlier than we probably should have for it to get there then. I don't remember what was happening at the time, but we got to Japan and the first day we got there, there was a show that night. So sound check was like, I mean, it was like a, it was like a rehearsal to try to remember, like we've had four weeks off. We've got to get back into this and, and you know, figure out how, to, how not to mess this show up. The, the show wasn't awful, but it, it wasn't great. And he got kind of upset. And that began kind of a, 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 I guess the only word to use was kind of a rift between us at that point. We kind of sectioned off to ourselves and him and Mike, they kind of did their thing while we were in Japan. And, um, you know, I think that he was trying to punish us for, for, for an awful show. And uh, I think that the terms were unreasonable. There was not enough time for us to prepare to do what we needed to do. And that wasn't our fault. But as you know, if you're messing up on stage, who are you going to blame? So, uh-huh, that's right. So what was there to really say about it? Except, you know, he just kind of went cold on us and stopped coming to coming on stage doing sound check and would ask for whatever he wanted from out front of house. And, you know, we did our prayer meeting in our dressing room. He did whatever he did in his. And that went on for about five or six shows, I want to say. Maybe that's a few too many. Maybe three. Until, like, he, I guess he finally, you know, uh, decided it was it was that, that we were forgiven. And then the tone kind of changed. But we all looked at each other like, I, I don't like that. You know, like we kind of discussed it with one another. Like, it's uh, either we're all in this together or we're not. And that seemed like, you know, he kind of, he, 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 he kind of grandstanded on us in, in a context where it was unwarranted. And we decided to kind of stay, you know, uh, in that kind of space. Like, things, we just got more rebellious as time went on. So by the time uh, we were fired in March, I think it was, um, I think it was it was as much, you know, we were as upset. I, I was as upset about being fired as I was happy about getting out. It, it, half of me was upset and the ha other half of me was going, he's doing you a favor. 
because you can't stay in an environment like that for your entire career. You have, have to some at some point. Well, number one, I started that job when I was 19. And by that time, I was 25 going on 26. So you reach a point where you're too mature to have somebody telling you when to come, when to go, where, for how long. You know what I mean? Like, I felt yeah. like I was at the point where that was not for me. I needed to determine my own destiny from that point forward. And so, you know, that's what I'm saying, is I had mixed feelings about it. And I was upset with him for a long time after. But uh, around the time that I was invited back to record drums on Baby Knows, that's when we mended whatever fences we had. We never had another problem after. Great. That's good. Yeah. Now, here is a technical question, just to give you a little bit of a break from the print stories and whatnot. All right. I, uh, I'm just going to take a go break of, of, uh, of my vegetables and whatnot here. My Do your thing. Okay, I'll what? take my time with the question. Uh, Keely says, uh, drum geek here. Did you pick your own equipment, i.e. FX symbols, drums and stuff, or did P have preferences and set you up with his choices for you to play? Um, sorry. I'll say that um, the first thing we really did together publicly was the party man video and um the kit they got for me was kind of it was supposed to mimic like a 1930s type kit but the kick drum was like a 32 inch kick drum and it, i mean if you see the video you'll see and um i know he was taken with that the size of that kick drum. he's like you need you know you need a set like that like a big kick like you know drums everywhere, drums everywhere and so what happened was um uh, I think Brad Marsh was was the drum tech still at that night. He put in. He asked me, "Well, what do you want?" And um, they special ordered uh, a custom kit from Yamaha, which was uh, all like. Um, I mean, the, the kit drum was a twenty six because I don't think they made anything any bigger than that. And even that had my toms like way up. The kit that I'm playing during the new tour was was the kit they they ordered to my speculation. All Prince said was, make sure the kick is big and you got a lot of toms. And I think also he said um, uh, it needed to be black because the nude tour was really, it was black and gold. So the kit was black and gold. It was a recording custom kit, 12, 13, 15, 16, 18. 12, 13, 15 on the rack toms and 16 and 18 on the floor toms, a 26 inch kick. And um, he, Never said a whole lot about the symbols. I mean, he liked my choices. He had been behind um, uh, one of my kits once before, and he was quick. Oh, I like this. Oh, what's that? You know, do they make this like this or so on and so forth? So um, he was interested, at, but I mean, he had you know. I mean, you you gotta you gotta you gotta compromise. You gotta cooperate. So you know, I, that was the biggest kit I played, and thank God that that at some point. I went back to a more spare <laughs> setup because I mean that that when you're that young you can reach for whatever with, with ease, but you know it, it's uh, I'm, I'm glad I only really had to do that that one tour because <laughs> that was a big kit and it was I, I mean it was it wasn't easy <clears throat> to get around. 
Here it is, 19 years old. You're in the Party Man video for the Batman soundtrack. And then what's coming up next, you guys doing Electric Chair on Saturday Night Live for the 15th anniversary at that time. That's right. Now, that was your first major TV appearance, correct? That's correct, yes. How was that experience? <laughs> I walked into Paul Simon's dressing room by accident. Whoops. And he was sitting I, I thought it was our dressing room. He looked up. Oh, sorry. This is, oh, no, that's cool. Hey, I saw you guys. Uh, he saw our sound check you know, for camera blocking and whatnot. You, you want to come in? You want some fruit? Uh, uh, no. Uh, okay. Thank you. Bye. Uh, bye. <laughs> I mean, hilarious. it was great. Hilarious. I mean, Margaret Cox was singing backgrounds. Patrice Russian was on keys. Mm -hmm. We rehearsed for probably a week. And, um, uh, jammed a lot, and Candy Dunford was there also, and we we had a great time. I, I mean, the show went off without a hitch, and um, I mean, I don't know what to really say. I mean, it was everything went it was a, It was a great performance, and that was the only time that that band was together, as you mentioned, with uh, Margie Cox, Patrice Russian, and Candy Dolfer up in that. Yeah. Like, was that just it for that one appearance, or was there supposed to be more of a broader use of that that band? Let me respond to Largo for a second. Okay, it, it's only because it, it it's vegetables and and uh, uh, is it quinoa? Uh, I would not normally, but it's gonna be uh, it's not gonna be good when it gets cold, Largo. I don't mean any disrespect. It isn't. But, uh, <laughs> Look, I'm drinking. It's all good, man. <laughs> Margo doesn't want this me isn't Fallon. eating pearl onions during my interview. Hey, I, I have my drinks during this interview, and it's I sometimes right. feel bad about it, so don't go for yeah, it, man. It's, it's all good. Time. I've had a long day. Uh, anyway, right? uh, pause, move. You're funny. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your question, Doctor. Not at all. No, but that, that was it with that band because that 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 was a one time only one time performance band. Was there anything? Was it were they going to be used for anything else that band, or was it just for that performance? Wow, I you know only Prince really knows. I mean, mm -hmm. the impression I got was that he wanted Patrice Russian to 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 come with us, um, but I think that. Uh, when you when you try to get people who are already established and doing their own thing, you know, to take time away from it to contribute to yours, it, it can often be difficult. I mean, I made an attempt at returning into the fold with Prince for a very short while. Uh, we had a band that I don't think any much of anybody knew about because it, it was only um, probably a few days. It was just me and Cassandra and um, Jubu Smith great guitar player, and and Goucher, great bass player. We were rehearsing in Studio A while he had another band rehearsing in, in the sound stage. And um, the trouble was, is that once you're out of that routine, it's difficult to make room in your life for that. Like, because Prince is very extemporaneous. Like, he doesn't want to plan too far ahead, but he wants you to be perfectly available when he calls. So... You know, that it just, I realized, I'm like, I got too much going on with Soul Asylum right now to, to that I like, I need to know what I'm doing. And, you know, I wasn't pressuring him for answers, but I'm just saying, 
I, I don't think this is going to work. And uh, and I think Jubu went back to work with Frankie Beverly and Mays. And uh, Goucher and Cassandra, obviously, uh, stayed on. They, they did more things. They worked with Andy Allo. They, um, you know, like the, the whole nine. They were there and stayed involved. But, you know, I tried to make it work. But, you know, somebody once said you can't go back, you know. And I think that the best thing that we could have done was continue to work together in the studio from time to time like we did and just, you know, like it's, that's, I mean, that the, the, the what was supposed to happen did happen in that respect. Uh, and even, even, we even tried um, with the Jay Leno show, with the Leno show where we played Dreamer in 09, I think it was. Yes. Like, we were always flirting with getting things back together and, and pushing forward. But, you know, it's just once you're in a position where you're forced to to go your own way, <laughs> it, it's hard to come back from that, you know? True. Yeah. Now, I saw someone's question, of course, because I do want to get to the new power trio. But I oh, kind of like this question as a, as a thing for it. Clara, she'd love to know more about the Undertaker session. And then, of course, then we can get to the new power trio through that which is a good setup question. So thank you, Claire. Appreciate you. <laughs> Prince, gave us yeah, Prince gave us Christmas vacation because he had to. <laughs> <laughs> Morris, and Son Morris and Tommy left town to make sure they weren't getting called for nothing. <laughs> and Sonny and I stayed in town because we didn't have nowhere to go. And about three days into vacation, Prince calls and says, are you bored too? I said, yeah, I could get into something, man. He said, will you call Sonny and can you guys come out here? I said, yeah, sure, why not? So we both went out there. And uh, I think first we were in Studio C. And uh, we were just playing around with ideas for songs. And uh, we kind of jammed and just, it was loose. But I could feel something was, was shaping up. And by the second or third day, we were recording. We were recording songs like Dark and um, I'm trying to remember. There's a version of Solo that's like very trio and kind of hard rock uh, that we cut around that time. Calhoun Square was something we also recorded. Like it was a tie line from, from the rehearsal room to Studio A. And um, then a day went by where we didn't do anything. And then he called again and said, <laughs> can you guys come out? And we walked out and we went where we thought we were supposed to go, I'm pretty sure. But we, but we were set up in the soundstage actually. And Paris Patton had been there. And I think he was editing the Sacrifice of Victor movie. So he was at, at Paisley, and I think, you know, so it was just like, Paris, come back here around 2 o'clock in the morning. We were going to do something. So we step out, you know, to the soundstage, and we see our gear set up and lit. And Paris is, like, winding the camera and doing this and that. And, um, you know, I mean, it was just, it was that impromptu. He didn't really explain a whole lot. We just kind of did what we did. And... Uh, that recording is uh, it, it's truthfully a direct 
to, to that tape jam. There was no way to overdub. There was no way to, to master it. It just, it really, literally what you hear uh, with the Undertaker recording is just what happened and how it happened. Uh, you know, fortunately, the sound was right. And fortunately, Paris didn't break the camera. <laughs> uh, I don't know what else to say except it was magical and that I know for a fact that it changed a lot of people's minds about Prince as a guitar player. And a lot of people heard that and said, we didn't know he could play like that. You know, but there was a thing about that format of the, the, the power trio that was totally in the moment. It was extemporaneous. He could play in any key. He'd start in any key. Sonny's got perfect pitch, so he's going to know where he's at already. And he's already playing, so I know what the tempo is. So just like he looked back and was like, let's go, fellas, and we just go, you know? And we could play all night like that. And we did. Uh, in like We moved from the soundstage <laughs> into the atrium, and we played one night there. And um, uh, we invited a bunch of our friends. And, you know, I remember Billy Franzi from, from, uh, from the combo, from Dr. Mambo's combo. Billy told Prince, he said, this is the best thing I've ever seen you do. It's incredible. And another friend of mine yelled out, mushroom music, <laughs> while we were playing it. What? And Prince kind of like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the whole thing was very, um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. It was just that, that whole period. It, it, was, um, it was exciting. And I think it might have been a direction he wanted to really seriously go in. But, um, and very few people know, but at some point, we flew to Los Angeles to play as a trio at the House of Blues. And uh, it never happened. We flew there. We went to SIR to rehearse. We shot the video for Peach. And the next morning, he was like, we ain't gonna do it. So we flew back to Minneapolis that night. And I remember that we didn't really want to want to give, we didn't. We were sort of instructed not to tell Tommy and Morris about it because, you know, it wasn't it it wasn't a solid thing. Like it was not something he had decided he wanted to really do, you know, and he didn't want them to be unnerved or feel threatened or any kind of weird way. You know what I mean? It's like you don't communicate everything all the time. You know, and. What's interesting was, is I was 18 at that time and I was hearing rumors, hey man, uh, Prince is gonna be playing the House of Blues. Like, da -da -da, it's gonna happen. I believe it was during a weekday where you guys were flown out. I'm not certain of that, but I was hearing it and I was like, dude, I, I'm not gonna be able to get down there. But then like, oh, and then it's like the next day, oh, it didn't happen. But the entire <laughs> time I was bumming, like it would have been amazing, but yeah. That's exactly what it was. I don't think he was ready to pull a trigger on, on that. It's um. But Sonny and I were going, wow, this is going to be like him elevating us to the to the level of like um, uh, Buddy Miles and Billy Cox. It's going to be like the new, you know, like the 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 new band of gypsies almost. Like that was going to be a major turn for us if he decided to do it. But uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not upset that he didn't. I get it. Like some things. Only move when you're sure. Only do it when you're sure. And I don't think he was he was ready to change everything. And that's and that's 
that was great. I didn't want to see Tommy and Morris out of a job. I, you know, their gear was always around, but they weren't during that time. And it was like me and Sonny kept looking at each other like, what's really happening? You know? So, but, you know, he, uh, he, we got a lot of classics out of it. A lot of stuff people still come up to me about. Calhoun Square is a, a big fan favorite. You know, Zanna Lee, um, uh, I, a few, a few others. I can't don't come to mind right now. But Papa was also another one that we we recorded in the studio very quickly. Now with the Undertaker, its original thing, at least that's what we hear. You know, he wanted to give it away with uh, Guitar World magazine. Apparently, Warner Brothers found out about that, and it didn't happen. So, how was Prince's mood? When here it was, you're going to give away this CD. He wants people to find out what a great guitarist he is. As you said, people were paying attention to him more for that. And here it was, his idea to give away with Guitar World, and Warner Brothers put the squash on that. That was true. That's what was supposed to happen, right? With it coming out with the Guitar World, the yeah. magazine. The, the interview happened. It came out, but yeah. not the insert. Because uh, I think he sent it. Uh, my understanding is that he sent it away for mastering. And, and duplication at a local plant. And the local plant looked and said, we don't have anything from Paisley Park on the schedule. What's this? And so I think they called somebody at Warner Brothers to find out, like, you guys got a Prince record coming out on schedule? And they were like, no. And so they, you know, obviously doubled back and were like, what's, what's happening? What's, what's going on? And Prince explained to them, what 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 the idea was and they were like well you can't you know respectfully you can't just do that you can't just put your music out whenever you feel like it i mean we have a contract we have a business arrangement it doesn't work like that and i think he accepted that at at, at that moment but the situation escalated <laughs> later when he did an interview for rolling stone when he was talking about the gold experience he was talking about it we hadn't started working on it yet. And um, he happened to be on a uh, call. I think it was with Mo Austin. And Mo was like, we don't know anything about this Gold Experience record. And uh, and Prince said, well, I haven't started working on it. It's in my head still. So, well, okay, well, when you finish that up, we'll, we'll be happy to take it, take it, you know. And Prince was like, well, you're talking like it's your property, and it's it, it, this is these are thoughts that I have in my head, and you know, it was like, are you trying to convey the 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 message to me that a record that I haven't even worked on yet, that I'm just conceiving of, of in my head, belongs to you? And I'm sure the situation escalated from that point. You know, the call, the phone call definitely did, and I think Prince sat for a minute. And he thought about that, and he was like, I, "No, I don't like that. That that's not going to work for me." And started trying to figure out a way to get out. Like, if that's really what you think of me, like we can't respect each other as equals. You know, with, without product, you don't have anything to do. So. And he just kept putting two and two together. Yeah, exactly. The next day, he walked down to rehearsal with Slave written on his face. <laughs> and nobody asked him nothing. 
And then slowly but surely, he started to explain to us what was happening. And it became almost a daily situation where we showed up for rehearsal and got summoned immediately to his office so that he had somebody to vent to. And uh, so, you know, I know on the outside, a lot of people were like, Princeton lost his mind. What is he talking about? And even us, it's like, okay, uh, I we're trying to follow, but um, yeah, but you can't express, only the person in the position can, can have a full understanding of what's taking place. You know what I mean? If you ain't been there, then you don't know. And uh, so we had to, we glean what we could from his interpretation of the events. And as everybody knows, things got more hardcore as it went. We went on tour for a record that was not supposed to come out. And he took an ad out in Billboard to tell you something. So, uh, you know, I think that was his way of being defiant and being rebellious, you know. Uh, and I'm not sure that they were any more mature in their dealing of the situation. And I think a lot of those executives, if you, if you ask them now, they'll go, yeah, in retrospect, we can see his point. But business is business, you know. Right. So anyway, I mean, you know, it was it was a mixed bag, man. I mean, we got to <laughs> we got to Europe. We got to well, we got to England first, I think. And every night the people started chatting, F Warner Brothers, F Warner Brothers. And <laughs> we were looking and Prince would turn around the band and start laughing. And so it was, you know, it was a public war. And I, I wished it didn't I wished it wasn't so undignified. But you know, it's um it's a thing I like to tell people in this day and age that you can't um, you can't tell somebody how to pro protest, you know, their their own genocide. The, 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 you know, somebody trying to choke you out. You can't you can't be critical of what they may do when they're put in that position. So you know, I've said that about George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and a lot of things that have been transpiring as of late. Because a lot of people want to say, well, they're burning things down. And you can't, if you're going to threaten an entire people, then get ready for what's coming. You know, you're going to try to kill a, a race of people. <laughs> then prepare, guard your lines. You know, don't complain about how they, how they protest. Get ready. You should expect uh, derision and action and furniture movement and smoke in the city. It's serious. You're trying to kill us. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. I digress. Where are we going now, Doctor? I understand. And of course, Mo Austin being the head of Warner Brothers and for how long he was, you think he would have known not to go that way with Prince. That's surprising. But, you know, that whole battle was, was supposed to happen. I believe the interview that you're referring to as well was with Alan Light uh, for Rolling Stone, which he didn't get cover for. But it is an interesting interview, and he and he that's where he started trusting Alan a lot more. And I think it's because Alan went to the New York shows of the Act One tour, and he really liked it. And Prince liked what he wrote, so that's where he trusted Alan to do the interview. Um, just adding notes onto that. Another question that we have is um from YouTube, and of course now it's not showing for some reason, but there we go. Um, an interview where. You said the vault is only a mystic if it's not opened. Is the mystic gone for the vault now? <laughs> I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't. 
the only member of the family I've been in very, very, very loose contact with has been Omar. Um, I don't really, I don't have any conception of what what may be there or not. I I know that I know this. Around the time that the the hits the B sides package came out, um, there was a problem with some of the older tapes because. You can't just leave tape to just fester. It's going to decompose. And the only thing that can fix it is you have to put them in a kiln, like you know, like you do with pottery. You have to bake the tapes so that the um that I mean it's I don't know the technical terms, but you have to bake the tape so that it, it returns to full. But I don't know. I, I I'm under the impression that you only get really one time to play it before it made this combobulate again. So they were in a mad dash to 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 bounce all these two-inch tapes. I remember, um, I think it was for the tears in your eyes. They opened the box and the tape was just crumbling. And it was like, ah! Oh! So, you know, whoever was on staff at the time, I think it may have been like Ray Hanfeld or uh, uh, Steve Durkee. I don't remember, but they were in a mad dash to bake the tapes so they could transfer them to new tape so they could live on. And if I saw the vault only one time. I got to peek inside. I think Ray was putting some tapes back. I said, are you going to the vault? He said, yeah. Why? You want to see it? I said, yeah. <laughs> so I followed him down. And I didn't have the nerve to actually walk in. But he knew the combination to the door and everything. It's an actual vault. The door, you got it's like a bank. Like, it's a tumbler. It's like, and there's a little room. There was a little room that you stepped into into before you got to the door well to see the door but there's a room outside that door that just had like the grammys and the oscars and the you know all the accolades and i think uh, uh, a, a lot of uh pageantry like feathers and <laughs> and uh uh just like a lot of foof like it was a decorated room where he kept his awards he opened the door he walked in and i slowly walked to the door and looked inside. And you know what, like, like uh, business office, uh, like uh, like shelving looks like, like that, that beige sort of metal with the, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like shelving in an office here. Yeah. Rows and rows and rows. Just tape. Probably 10 of those office shelving units Tape, 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 tape. Uh, movie reel on the floor in a box. I said, what's this? And uh, Ray said, I think it's some movie they shot before Purple Rain. I'm like, oh, I'd heard about the myth about this movie, The Second Coming. And that never came out. I don't know if, I, I don't know if there's footage out there of it, but it was sitting in a cardboard box near the entryway into the, into the vault. Uh, which I found funny. You know, that's how much he cared about that. But um, if it, I think that whatever uh, situation the family has with with the uh, uh, with whoever is taken over, I think they they're seeing to that. They're seeing that the tapes are properly properly restored and in some kind of condition. I mean. Uh, I, at least I hope so. But that was that was what yeah. was communicated to me by somebody yeah, who I think was supposed to know. 
yeah, it's at Iron Mountain right now, and they haven't said for the most part that they're. It seems that most mostly of it, a majority, a huge majority, was salvageable. So that's a good thing. But it is at Iron Mountain now, which I do feel is a better place than Paisley was for having it for these uh, instances we talked about, whether it was for the tears in your eyes or other water damage that would happen at Paisley Park there. It being at Iron Mountain and the tapes being baked, for the most part, um, they've been salvageable, for sure. Okay. I'm glad to know that because that's a lot of music. Yes. Ridiculous amount. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Some of the stuff would be on files that, you know, that you were making in the 90s. Because, of course, he did like having the two-inch tapes, but there was stuff that he would make the files on, and you'd see uh, the disc. And I believe they were able to transfer those over as well. But okay. ridiculous amount of music. And the second coming, uh, there there has been some footage over the past years that has circulated, but that is something that is in there. Uh, they haven't brought that up in interviews yet, though, if that's been salvageable. But I do know that the person that did direct it, I believe they have a copy of it still. So ah. here's hoping we'll give it, it'll get an official release uh, in time with the family running things and whatnot in the future. Yeah, I, I hope Can I, Gwen, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm eating a, a medley of vegetables. Is this good <laughs> On grits and gravy, it's delicious. It's a, uh, I, I peeled some of these pearl onions myself a little earlier before the interview, but my wife was so uh, gracious to bring the plate down to me, so I didn't want to disrespect her by just letting it sit there. She went through a lot of trouble. Uh, what else is in here? Sweet potatoes, zucchini, peppers. Yes, we're we're um, getting ready to move to a vegetarian diet. In this house, hey, it's all good because it reminds me of uh, you. It wasn't in the three chains of gold, but it was in the act one special ABC concert where you're doing an interview and someone brings you a piece of pizza and you go, Only one piece. So, this this whole thing with the vegetables things it just reminds me of that. So, I'm oh, having wow. a good time. Uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't even think of that, right? I'm lucky. <laughs> it's actually not Ken Watts, it's grits. It just how many grits? <laughs> now, well, I can watch. Sorry, go ahead. Absolutely no. Um, when it comes to the Undertaker sacrifice of victory and these other things, just like the Second Coming isn't circulating, is there other things that were shot that way? Um, whether it was the Undertaker or sacrifice of victory, other things that you made that still haven't seen the light of day that were close to a film project, more so than unreleased videos, because we know there's a lot of those. Well, I don't, when we were shooting all the time, I mean, we actually shot a segment. I don't know what it was for, but we were all playing basketball. Uh, uh, well, I wasn't really, because I don't know how to play. I was, I was watching mostly, but uh, I had this idea. I said, what we should do is we should shoot, like, all me going to the, going to the hoop, and, uh, and, um, <laughs> and everybody should be backing up. Yeah, I, I should, I'm driving to the hoop, and then we should cut, and I, I'll go up the ladder, and I'll slam it in, <laughs> into, into the uh, into the net, and we'll cut it like that. It'll look like I just like I just slammed up, and uh, he started cracking. I was like, no, let's do it. Let's do it right now. So he got Paris to come come. And we shot this thing 
we were always shooting stuff. We showed up one time and we were being, I don't know what the footage was for. It seemed like he was putting together some kind of some kind of magical mystery tour type of movie. But then, like, he, we had lines. We showed up. We thought we were going to be recording music. And instead, it was like we had lines and we walked into, like, Studio A. And it was like, oh, well, who's in here? And Sonny was like, whoever's in here, they're about to, about to get whooped. Something, something, something. I, I've seen it played back. So I know it's out there somewhere. I don't know what that was for. But this was like, um, I want to say that Andy Allo was in it. And... Uh, a, a lot of people. Can you tell me what this is I'm referring to? I'm trying to now, because now I was thinking of a different time period, and now you're over here with Andy Allo. So I'm not thinking of it right now. If there's someone else in the room that may know, please hip us to it. But it's this is like, all it, interesting. It, yeah, I mean, it was set up to look like kind of like we were coming back and we were taking over. We were either kicking Hannah and... Um, yeah. No, okay, okay. It wasn't. It wasn't for any. It was actually for the thirty-one twenty-one movie. It was Josh Dunham and okay. CC Dunham, where you got where, and I saw this in the in the movie footage. It was kind of a slam to CC and Josh. Yeah. To where he's all like, "This ain't working," and then all of a sudden, it's like he leaves, and it's like he goes into another studio, and then there's you, and there's Sunny, and then you guys are jamming, and then he goes, "That's what I'm talking about." Yeah, I know. I, so I felt weird about that myself. I'm like, what is? Why would so? You yeah, it's for the thirty-one twenty-one movie. Okay, and that is at least in the in the version that I saw of it, that was still in it. All right. Well, <laughs> I hope they know we, we were just reading our lines. <laughs> I yeah, think, I think they're both extraordinary musicians. I, I remember when Josh started working for Prince. He said. You need to hear my new bass player. He came down to bump and he's like, "Man, you you really like my new bass player because he's uh he's a young cat, but he plays kind of old." <laughs> I said, "Oh, all right, yeah, man, great." And the first time I got to play with Josh, it was like, "Wow, man!" Uh, he like he really, I, I really enjoyed playing with him a lot. And uh, and I, I you know I, the first time Cora came down and sat in at bunker. Like man, she's bad. Like those two musicians have my utmost respect, as all of those people do, because that's not an easy environment to function in. You got to almost have photographic memory. You know what I mean? Because the show is being changed all the time. The music's being changed. Things are changing all the time. If you're, you know, a uh, if you're slow, you're not gonna last long. So I, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm. I'm officially giving credit to all who entered that door and managed to stay longer than you know, a, a, a day or so. Definitely. They must have been fighting at that time. Yeah, Prince, Prince can be that way, right? <laughs> we know. Yeah, well, he can be a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. It's all good. And now with this one, this is an interesting uh, question perhaps can you tell us about playing stand up and be strong and playing it for prince and him recording a cover of it oh well sure i mean the the situation was that uh, i had joined soul asylum in 2005 and um the record got a pretty good push uh i'm sorry did we lose him but not me doctor 
Did the doctor leave? I don't know. I don't. I don't see him no more. I'll keep answering the question though. Uh, no, maybe I better not. No, go for it. Oh. Sorry about that. That's my fault. <laughs> um, popped out. Pop back in. All right. Um, I mean, basically, the record came out, and the song was the first single, and it, it did really well. And uh, I think ESPN picked it up for a little while, and they played in some sporting events, and we were touring around the country, and there were all these like high school football teams and college football teams that had, uh, had taken it on as their anthem, and you know, um, uh, I did a session for Prince uh, somewhat later after it had been released. And uh, he said, I heard that Stand Up Be and Be Strong song. He said, is, uh, uh, did, was that a hit for you guys? Did it, did it, did it chart? I said, no. It could have gone probably higher if we had had a different delivery system. We, we had signed with Sony Legacy. And Sony Legacy was a, a label that was used to releasing, re-releasing music. They did a lot of reissues. Um, so there wasn't a huge promotional budget. And uh, so we did what we could. And he was like, that song, that song is, is, is a great song. Uh, I, uh, and I said, yeah, well, I'll be sure to tell Dave that, that, that you liked it. He, he really, you know, he really likes your music also. I, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a fan as well. And um, we went on and we, we cut a couple things that he, he wanted to record. And then he said, you think Dave would mind if if uh, if I did a cover of that song, and I said, I, I think he'd be honored. He said, "Can you call him?" Because I don't want to get into a legal thing later on. I said, "Sure." I said, "I'll just step out and call him." And I stepped outside of Studio A into the hallway there, and uh, and I called Dave, and I said, "Dave, Prince is asking you if he can do a cover of Stand Up and Be Strong." What? <laughs> he wants to cover that song? Wow! Oh, it was around the time that that. Prince did the Super Bowl because uh, it was it was a little while after that, and Dave was like, "I'm sure he swore a couple times," and he went, "Yeah, absolutely." I said, "He just wants to make sure he has your yes, he's got it," and tell him by the way that that, that the Super Bowl was killing, like he was he was really great. He said, "All right," and so we started working on it, and um, he didn't know the words well enough to like just kind of go at it straight away, so. We kind of recorded the bass together, and um, I, I know somebody got the words for him, and um, I don't know if he ever actually finished that 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 arrangement, that version, or not. Uh, I, I, we never really talked about it after that. But what was that? The Super Bowl was was that two thousand seven? Yes, that makes sense because the record came out in 06. So uh, the silver lining. Uh-huh. He would well I, I think that he, he tended to anyway. I think he was always curious, you know, what people were going to do once they were, you know, out and about. And uh, you know, I, I think that um it, I, it's funny because um I worked for Jam and Lewis for a short while after Prince fired us. And um they had an artist named Angel Grant they were working on. And she was um, a background singer from Atlanta who did a lot of the background vocals on Janet Jackson's records. Hmm. And it was me and Big Jim Wright, Terry and Jimmy playing, and um, uh, a guitar player that worked with her. 
and uh, also Libby Turner on backgrounds and um, Prof T from uh, Low Key. Uh, yeah, uh, Perspective Records. They were with Terry and Jimmy. And um, Terry asked me uh, in the middle of rehearsal, he's like, hey, do you have you been out to visit Prince since all that? I said, no, <laughs> you know, I was still a little hot about it, actually, to be honest. I said, why, why would I do that? He said, somebody like you, I'm sure that he misses you. Like you should go out there and visit and, and, and talk to him. I'm sure he would enjoy that. And that, that warmed my heart up a little bit. Like, I think that was the first point where I was like, I'm going to have to give up the ghost because people are people and everybody does what they know. So whatever malice or anger I got in me, I'm going to need to let this go. I didn't let it go right then, but I knew that I, I was going to have to. You know? Um, I'm sorry. I don't remember where I was headed with all of this. but um, Just that, how it came to him, you know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This song. And I know that also um, at one point I was going to... Uh, I was in line to go work for Michael Jackson. And I know that somebody told Prince that, and he was like, that don't sound like a possibility to me. Like, that don't sound, I don't think that would happen. Meanwhile, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be the first musician to be able to say I've been in both camps. Mm. And, uh, and sure enough, it, it did not work out the way it was supposed to. I left tour with Paul Westerberg to sit at home and wait for the confirmation call. And Meanwhile, Sonny Emery was already <laughs> on the Sony lot rehearsing with the band. And nobody called me and told me nothing. So, uh, yeah, that, that was apparently not meant to be. <laughs> but, yeah, he, somebody, people would tell him or he would, he would find out. I mean, you know, just as certainly as he, I mean, he continued to come to Bunkers on and off. You know, all, all those years. He, I mean, mainly to hear Margaret sing, but also to say hey to Sonny and, you know, to see what we were playing. He liked old school music. That's all we played. We never played nothing. If we played anything new, it was because we felt the pressure to have to do it. Otherwise, anything released after 1988 or so, the combo didn't really play it. <laughs> Just in the last couple of years, we started playing too close by neck. <laughs> but, um, uh, so, yeah, he was always around. He was interested in, in what we were doing and what we were getting into and, you know, whether, whether he told us as much. But I know that he, he kept up. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you were close to playing with Michael, but you also were close to playing with Madonna as well, correct? Oh, yeah. I, I, I went out to, again, I'm back on the, the, the Sony lot in Culver City <laughs> rehearsing with Madonna for three days. And then there's this personnel change and I get swept out. <laughs> Me, Michael Bearden, a bunch of people got fired that, that next morning. The, her, her manager calls and says, hey, uh, how are you doing this morning? I said, great. He said, listen, we're going to fly you home today. <laughs> uh, Madge said she really enjoyed working with you, but where she's headed right now, you'd be like a, you'd be like major, a major league baseball player on a little league team. Like it's everything is about to change. It, it, she's she's convinced that it will not hold your interest as a musician. So uh, 
I'm going to direct you to uh, our, um, uh, our our uh, accounting department, and they'll discuss things with you from there. And the guy kind of called, or he the guy got on the phone and uh, was like, "Well, okay, well, you know, uh, we know that, you know, because of the caliber of musician you are, you probably turned something else down to do this." So I've been sent to give you some certain sort of, I've been instructed to give you some sort of severance. I was like, it's really not that big of a deal, man. He's like, listen, I just need a number. <laughs> like I'm just trying to get on with my life, pretty much. Like, just tell me what you need so that we can make this make business clean. And I was like, oh, I don't know, 10 grand? It'll be in the mail tomorrow. Thank you, sir. And that was it. <laughs> so <laughs> that was my brief dalliance with Madonna. And within the first day, she started calling me bland. And the other remarkable thing I noticed, the first thing I said on the inside, when she walked in, the way she was walking around the room and sort of surveying what everybody was doing, she hadn't said nothing to nobody. I said, this is Prince in a white woman's suit. This is, it's the, like she had the exact same sort of like scrutinizing look on her face. Like she was looking to see whether everything was prepared for her arrival. Like is everything in place? You know, and uh, it was really interesting working with her. And I knew that Prince had a lot of respect for her as a songwriter. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember I, I would, I had said some things about her singing from time to time. He's like, she's not the best singer, but the reason she has so many, so many hits is because she's involved in the writing process greatly. Like she really, she knows music. She don't play anything really. But she knows what chord she's at. He said, when we work together, I, I pretty much sit there and I interpret as she tells me what she wants to hear, you know, and I'll play a chord and she'll say, no, 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 not that chord. And I'll give her a variation. I'll say, well, how about here? There, there, there it is. Like she knows what she's after. She didn't have the tools to do it herself. But I mean, really, what is Madonna? She's a, a mediocre singer an average dancer at best, but it's beyond that. It's beyond all that. Like there's something else going on in her that sets her apart from everybody else. And you can criticize her, you know, on a, a aesthetic level, but you can't criticize her track record. Something is at work or was, I don't know what she's doing now, but that, that record music, that was the last record of hers I bought with my own money. That record music changed my life. That record is incredible. So I'll just say that. I like that one too. Oh, yeah, okay. it's from her own admission. She said before that she isn't the best singer, but yeah, she still is able to bring different things to the table. You're not disrespecting her at all, and I want people to know that. Because you know what she mastered? She mastered... Uh, the art of expressing oneself oneself accurately, using herself as a resource, using her life experience. Not every songwriter can really do that. You know, really your potential always lies within you. You gotta dig for what's on the inside. It's it's a it's a travel inward. And some people are scared to face what they, you know, see when they go in. Like it's songwriting is a very anyone who does it well is a brave person. You know, because they got to resonate with things that everybody can feel. Everybody can, has experience on some level. It's not easy to to, to coalesce the vapor of human experience. 
into a three-minute song, but some people have managed to do it. It's not easy. I've been, I've been doing a lot of songwriting and producing, you know, in the, the last decade, and it's never over. The process is always going. And I've learned from peers and, uh, and um, mentors alike. Some of the best songwriters I know, they're constant. It's, it's like a thing they can't turn off. I remember asking Paul Westerberg, I said, you got any, mu any new music? He said, yeah, a whole lot, but, but nowhere to put it. He's like, I write on a pathological level. Every day I come up with something new. I don't even have a record deal right now. It's like I can't control myself. Um, Phil Solom from the Rembrandt. Every time you meet him and you're speaking to him, it's not just a conversation he's having with you. He's, he's playing with your words while you're talking to him. He'll spit your, your sentences back, rearranged in, in a way that makes completely uh, no sense in one way and more sense in another. <laughs> like he just plays word games. All I'm convinced all day. He's just moving words around and trying to find a new way to, to say, uh, to, to make a commentary, a valid commentary on life as we know it. Like it's a never ending pursuit. So, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know where we're at now, doctor. I'm just kind of going. We're everywhere on it. And now someone had this, they brought up the segues to Exodus, but let's just get into Exodus. They want to know the deets. Oh boy. I think that's, that was probably the height of Prince's anger. And he decided that if he said all the stuff that he made Sonny say, that that somebody would come for him. <laughs> and that record began uh, very aggressively. We, the first thing we recorded was a song called Slave to the System. And I don't know what version you got. You got both versions with Prince and Sonny singing? Probably not, not that one, but I know the oh. original is better than the one that was out before, but go ahead. Okay. Um, and um, from there, I think the next thing we cut was uh, The Exodus Has Begun. And we didn't know all the words were going to be going by while we were talking like that. Um, like we really didn't know until the record came out. Like, whoa. Spatch, Cox, and Blackface offer us pennies <laughs> when it's millions Upon millions, they reap. Oh, ooh. all right, Prince. Yeah, they might have something to say about that. It, you know, okay. I mean, after that, we cut. Um, uh, what's it called? New Power Souls. New Power Souls. I think that was the next thing we cut. But it, it, the, that process moved along really quickly, and um, we experimented with a couple of ways to record "Get Wild." Uh, that were unsuccessful. He um, he, in, in the end, decided to uh, remix it and do more like programming. And uh, uh, I think the, the, the horn section just ended up being, a, you know, some samples he flew here and there. Uh, but um, like he salvaged what he could from the original track and built something else that was uh, a bit more commercially viable. Um, the same thing happened with 319. We cut a version at a full band uh, with the horns and everything. And it was just like, it was unrefined. It wasn't focused in the right way. I understand why he did it. Um, and I liked the, what, what he did with it. 
Same thing happened with race. There's a version, full band version, but he had gone back to the drawing board. You know? So, I'm, again, I'm just sort of going, man. <laughs> That's fine. And then I know, uh, can't say how I know, but there was a lot of remixes at that time for so many songs, whether it was Get Wild or other tracks off the Gold Experience. So I, yeah. I'm kind of like, even P-Control, there's so many versions of it people just aren't aware. There's probably like 20 remixes. I believe um, Was it just, I just, I, maybe it was him trying to work through the sound. Uh, now, when it comes to Return of the Bump Squad. Oh, boy. What okay, let's get into that and what exactly is just because I've heard different variations of it, what exactly is a bump squad? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I know there's some references to smoking weed in that song. In other stuff. Uh, uh, can I get a bump? I mean it's certainly drug related in, in, in some way. Right. But I know also, and speaking of those segues, there's one where I asked Sonny if he's still smoking that headache weed. Sonny, you still smoking that headache weed? Oh, man, shut up. So, and actually, Prince, you know, was like, hey, say this to Sonny. Because, like, it was being recorded. Like, I was on, like, a make a phone call in the studio type rig. So, they were recording it as we were speaking back and forth. And, um, the prince just like came over and whispered in my ear, asked Sonny if he's still smoking that headache weed. Sonny don't smoke weed. It was just, that's fun and games, man. It was just, you know, we just, we're just goofing around. I just, I, I mean, we felt silly doing it. And, and I felt like, why are we returning to this? We had so many complaints about the 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 symbol album, you know, with all the, I mean, the segues that, that, that made it onto the symbol album, most of them are understandable. But the first verse of that record had a lot more in there. And I remember Levi coming to us and saying, I think these segues, there's too, too many segues on this record. I mean, I, I want to talk to Prince about it, but you know, I mean, it ain't really, you know, it, it ain't my, you know, it's not my job. And, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, get him up. But I'm like, well, no, I, I, he's like, but if I can get a consensus from everybody, then he may seriously consider it. So Levi talked to everybody, and then he went to Prince. Like, Prince, we got to cut some of these segues off this record. It's like I realize you're trying to tell a story, and but for the listener, it's going to be too much information that they're not going to want to deal with. And Prince listened. He listened to Levi. I mean, I think that Levi, in many ways, uh, he had such an effect on that period. Like, um, I, I, I'll tell you this. I remember the day. That we were all sitting, I don't know why we were in the Studio B lounge. I think we were leaving. Some of us were leaving and some of us were coming in. But Levi started talking about the Prince, you need a song called My Name is Prince. And he started, my name is Prince. Levi literally spit that out of his mouth and we were cracking up. And he was like, Conrad Prince, I want to meet you. He did the whole thing with his mouth. He beatboxed the whole thing. The only thing Prince didn't do was uh, make a B-side called My Name is Still Prince. That's the only idea he didn't take from Levi in that exchange. And the whole time we were sitting there, we were cracking up. Then I man, I happened to look over in Prince's face and Prince wasn't, wasn't laughing. Prince was looking. And he went right in the studio and did it. 
uh, Sexy MF, Levi used to, uh, I hate to be dropping dime on Levi, but the, the fact of the matter is, that was something Prince, Prince got from Levi. Prince would, uh, Levi rather, would walk through the building and sometimes he'd just, uh, just mess with, uh, with people who were in the building. He'd just peek in people's office and do, do something crazy and then keep moving. He was just that type of dude. And I don't remember which uh, female uh, 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 employee he used to go in her office. And you could hear him from outside the office. He's, he's, you know what? You were sexy, mother. <laughs> and I think Prince was passing through the atrium one day. He heard Levi say that. We were in the studio. <laughs> you know, Levi had a lot of... I, 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 mean, I hope he got credit for a lot of that stuff. Sometimes I'll look at the credits, but I try not to because sometimes it makes me mad. <laughs> but... uh. Uh, he had a lot to do with that whole that whole period. Like uh, he like Prince relied on. He, I mean, Levi was the musical director. Levi, we prepare the show. We prepare a good ninety minutes of music for Prince to walk in on the next day and make some notes, and he'd go back to doing whatever he was doing. But Levi was the one who. Okay, let's try this. You know, ooh, that's funky, ain't it? Wait a minute, stay there for a minute, and then we can do this. Like Levi was the mastermind, man. I mean, the two of them working together, we couldn't be stopped. It was crazy. It was crazy. I'm about to go into that. Now, Sexy MF, and we're going to go into the segues. I'm going to have a question. I'm going to trail back to that. Sexy MF, legend has it, one take. Was it done in one take? No, it was not. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, I think it was the second take that, that everybody is familiar with. I mean, I mean, I mean, probably the only reason the first take, the first take was probably incomplete, because we were still moving things around and trying to figure out what we were doing. I mean, Prince was literally at the piano pounding rhythms on the top of the piano to me, like like this, like put the snare here, and then you know, and like we had to work to figure out what that beat was, and then, and then Kirk had to fall in with the congas on top of that. So, it was a, you know, it was a bit of a Ouija board. So you can't always get it right the first time. Um, I mean, and you know, God forbid you ask Prince for a third time going through because he he didn't want to have to do it. He, I remember a, a day that um, I said, "Can we do it one more time?" And he was like, "No." <laughs> he said, and he literally said, "That that space is fine. I'll do something with it. You're worse than me." And he just basically kicked me out the studio. I was like, "You you are you are more critical of yourself than I am." And with that, you know, kicked me out the studio. <laughs> See, and that just like reminds me, like when you're hearing the ending of the morning papers, it's like you hear like okay, and it's like to stop. It's like he's like, all right, we're not going to do another take of that. We're going to go on. That's because it kind of kind of sounded like you didn't have that many takes of it, but it sounded amazing. And to well, the segues, I'll go tell ahead. You about morning papers. I'm sorry, but um, no, please. Uh, a couple of songs that just happened to be one more take. I mean, even Diamonds and Pearls. The second take, the only difference, there were two differences. Uh, one that we um, removed a beat from a bar after uh, after the bridge. And also, the first time we played it, I didn't do any of that, you know, magnanimous drum filling in, in that space. Because he hadn't said to do anything. He just, so I resumed. I left it empty. 
and we got ready to do it again. And he said, oh, this time, first he discussed the removal of this one beat from this bar. And then he was getting ready. Everybody ready? He said, oh, I mean, he literally said it right before he hit play and record on the, on the, uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, transport. He said, oh, also that's that space during the, during the first part of the bridge, put something in there before we go into the, and I went, okay. So the entire time we're cutting the second pass of, uh, of, of the person, like, what am I going to do? And it just kind of came to me in a split second, like right before it all happened. And I mean, that's that's really the difference. I didn't get a chance to work it out. He, we were in a hurry. We were getting ready to head downtown. Tommy and Sonny and I were, were all headed downtown because um, I think they were either subbing for some of the cats in the combo that night. Like we were all just went down, going downtown after a rehearsal with MC Flash, which was Margaret Cox, Cox's band. Prince walked down to the sound stage and caught us before we left and said, I got this idea in my head. I'm trying to get it out. Can you stay for a few minutes? Which turned into, this is great. Can you guys go in Studio B with me right quick and record this? So we had no time to deliberate. Like it, it really moved quickly. And not only that, he was so happy with the results that he sent Dwayne and them down after us to bunkers at, uh, after we finished and said, Prince want y'all to come back out to Paisley. <laughs> so we went back that night and cut Live for Love. Uh, I mean, it, I think once he got to track with Tommy and Sonny and I together, he saw that he could move very efficient. Like he, he saw that everybody could keep up and that we could do great things in, in a very efficient amount of time. So that's why we recorded so much together because it, it we I'm not making any digs or I'm not I'm not uh comparing or conflating our uh, the way we work to the how the revolution worked or the love sexy band I mean those were all killer bands everybody knows it you know but um the the way people work together is unique you know I mean the reality is <laughs> for better or worse there's only one person like me in the whole universe you know and what Prince was best at was harnessing your true potential. And me and Sonny, it's like we it's like we rode to this planet on the same spaceship. The day I met Sonny, I, I met my, my musical soulmate. And Prince knew anything he put on top of me and Sonny, it was gonna go. He just knew that. So when he needed that very specific thing, well, we were there, you know. Yeah. Definitely. And when it came, and we're going to jump to this and we'll get back to Diamonds and Pearls and the other things, because it came to some of the segues being eliminated from the Sybil album, including one with Maite playing with her child, Michael, in the year closer to 2020. Maybe there's a reason why it was eliminated from the track, but you guys had, which was supposed to be a cassette only bonus, uh, was I Want to Melt With You. So some of the segues being eliminated brought on I Want to Melt With You, which we wouldn't have been able to get if not for that. I wonder what else we would have had if uh, some more segues were taken out, you know? Well, there was but always I, music. I mean, we were never in short supply of, right. of music. <laughs> I mean, and it does. Absolutely. You're right. 
And definitely it seems that the segues from Exodus were a lot more popular than the one from the symbol album, for sure. <laughs> okay. Mashed Potato Girl. All right. You know, count the days, all that stuff of with just the thing with Sonny with him taking a basically gunshot like Elvis to the TV. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely painted Sonny in a very certain light. <laughs> I'm not sure if Sonny appreciated that or not, but the two of them have known they know had known each other since I mean I think Sonny was probably 17 and Prince was probably 15. We're talking about two guys who just met on on the city bus. Each of them had a guitar. And it was like, oh hey, you play guitar? All right. Like literally, that's what happened. They met on they met on the bus, on the city bus. They both had guitar cases and they just started talking. And um, a lot of people don't know. When Prince when Prince's band kicked him out <laughs> and he had to go solo, he he uh he decided he was going to raise money and, and go to Los Angeles and shop for a deal. And uh, Sonny hired Prince. Prince played guitar in the family for a while and got his money up for that trip to take out to Los Angeles to shop. You know, I mean, they, those two were, uh, they were really, they were true friends. And I, I, I don't want to cry about it. But I remember the last night that, um, Prince was at Bunkers, and Sonny went back to talk to him before he left. He's like, "Oh, you leaving, man? Yeah." And uh, they just took a moment, and uh, and Sonny said, "I love you, man. Like no matter what, like to the universe and back." And Prince said, "I love you too, Sonny." And he disappeared out that door through the kitchen. That was the last time we saw him. Sonny got to tell him that, you know. And I mean, you're talking about two people who are more than more than colleagues, you know? I mean, in many ways, Sonny was Prince's mentor, you know? And he said as much in his interview in a Guitar Player magazine or whatever, a magazine, Guitar World. And I remember the interviewer kept at, like digging for like a bigger influence, like a popular influence. And well, I, we'd heard that you grew up listening to a lot of Santana and uh, we, feel like we hear notes of Jimi Hendrix coming in and Prince is like, yeah, I dug those guys, but really it was Sonny. Prince told me from his own mouth, he said, me and Andre used to go to Sonny's house, like in the afternoon. <laughs> and we looked down in the basement window to see if he was home. He said Sonny would be downstairs in his mom's house on a mattress, no box spring, with a big nose amp and a Stratocaster and a wah-wah pedal and chain smoking, just smoking the whole time. And they'd wave like, can we come down? And they'd go downstairs and Sonny would commence to giving them a guitar clinic, uh, unparalleled by anyone else they could possibly, you know, <laughs> uh, get to. And Prince said it was, it was better than watching television. We'd just go to Sonny's house and we, you know, He'd give us, he'd, he'd play, and like that was the most amazing thing we could see that day. He said, like, the only thing left to do after that is, you know, is like go outside and swap mosquitoes. That was it. Like, they, they, I mean, really, 
the entire uh, black music community uh, owes a, a debt of gratitude to Sonny. I've never met anybody so selfless about sharing knowledge about music. And he's a natural teacher. He's just, he, he, he will encourage anybody. Sonny Thompson has a, you may never get him on your show because he don't really like to speak publicly that much. But I will speak and say that he is, he has maybe the biggest heart of any musician I know. He'll help anybody if it's come, if it comes to music. If you're trying to learn, Sonny will share the knowledge he's got, you know. And without Sonny, uh, we don't know what may have happened to him, really. Like, he needed Sonny in his life. But I think I would agree with, um, I think Jimmy Jam was the one who said the reason it took him so long to actually put Sonny in his band is that you've got to be in a particular headspace to be in a band with your mentor, with, with, with somebody who taught you so much. Like, you got to really, your head's got to be ready for that. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, again, I'm just kind of meandering, man. Stop me whenever you want. <laughs> Doctor, did you lose me? Doctor, can you hear anything? He's not responding. Uh, can you hear me? Hello? No? Am I in the Matrix? All right, there's one question I'm gonna ask because I have to step away because my headphones died. But someone asked, is there's anything that you would um, go back and change when it came to your relationship with Prince and something that you didn't do? Um, and I'm gonna be away from that while you answer that, but is there any regrets or anything that you wish you can go back and do over? Um. I'll be back. <laughs> okay, you'll be back. Take me off screen and I'll Hi, be back. Hi, everybody. I'm going to take this opportunity to, uh, to ask that question. One thing very in particular that, that I was thinking about during the short time after uh, the short time after Prince passed away. He was um, uh, <laughs> uh, Prince was when I joined, I was very young and in green and he knew that. As a matter of fact, so when he called to, to ask me to join his band, I uh, I was naive naive enough to think that I could get another semester of college in during the fall before work would really take off. And I and I told him as much. I said, "Well, you think I'll have time? Uh, would it be? Uh, will I be able to squeeze another semester in at Oxford Lutheran College?" And Chris started laughing so hard on the phone, and then he stopped and he said. I don't think you're going to be having, yeah, I don't think you're going to have time for that. And uh, that must have been some indication to him that I didn't really know what was going on. Um, uh, but another thing that I did kind of early on, I heard we'd be uh, flying out of town to go do something. And sometimes I'd ask him, I'd run into, run into him in the hallway and say, um, oh, what time is that flight tomorrow? Did you, um, uh, uh, what time do we have to be? I'd ask him like questions about the itinerary or where, where we were going uh, or how much time we had for. And the whole time he'd be looking at my face like, don't you understand? I'm Prince. <laughs> I, listen, I might not even be on the same plane as you. I, like you have no, why are you bothering me with this information? But he never once 
blew up. Like he really, he pulled those punches. He really knew. He knew I was young. And I didn't know nothing or nobody. Uh, and I never got to really thank him for being so merciful in those moments. I didn't really realize the magnitude of the situation I was in. And he was understanding. I, I, I mean, he, he may have been biting his, biting his tongue. You know, he might have had bite marks. But, um, but he never once just went like, listen, just stay out of my face with all that. Don't you understand that we are not, this, this is not, we're not peers here. <laughs> I am your boss. I, I, I work on a different schedule. You don't know how much I have to accomplish. I'm not thinking about how you're getting to from point A to point B. I have somebody on staff to tell you that information. Get out of my face. He never, he never did do that. He could have. But he, he never, he always forgave my ignorance um, in situations like that. However, in a musical, uh, the last thing you want to do is say sorry. So Fritz would say, mm, don't be sorry, be sure. Right? You know, know what you're doing. And he was right about that. And um, that's another lesson that, I, that has stayed with me through the entirety of my career, everywhere I go. I want to be sure. I don't want to be sad, you know. Um, while we're uh, well, the doctor is uh, away. Let me go ahead and scan these uh, these questions. Can you talk about the section you did before? Yeah, yeah that was one take in Studio C at Paisley Park. Um, and I, I went as far out as I could. He was like, "That's great." So that was my experience with Foley in the studio. He's uh He's a great musician and a great person, and I love him dearly. I wish I could work with him uh, again. Uh, who knows? That may come. It may not. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm looking. Sorry, I'm an old man. Uh, this is a good piece. Yes, you are. Uh, can you tell us about Love to the Night? How's that put together? Oh, tediously. That was the longest tracking day of my life, I think. Uh, we were not only recording Love to the Nines that day, but we also recorded Three Changes of Gold and Johnny. And uh, from scratch, all of that. Johnny, well, actually, we had been playing that on the road, on actually. But, um, uh, of course, we started with the beat, and we figured out, he was like, I, I want this sort of rhythm. And, you know, we kept playing with him, so he said, yeah, I like that. And then he moved to the court. Like he was very methodical that day, but it took a long time because, oh, really? Is the sound muffled now here? Can, can y'all hear me? Somebody tell me you can hear me. I'm looking at the bottom of the uh, comment. Can you guys hear me or am I muffled? You can't hear what I'm trying to say. Somebody please make a comment. Uh, all right. It's muffled. I don't understand why that would be. Oh, I guess there's a storm coming in my life this told me. Uh, or maybe I'm talking too loud. <laughs> um, in, in any case, I hate Corey. Um, well, maybe I should be doing shout out. I see you, Badra. Uh, what state is Minnesota? At the moment, oh, George Floyd trial. I don't know 
I, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been keeping up. I've just been too busy with some other things, April. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't honestly know. Um, it got muffled after the doctor dropped out. Move closer to the screen. I'm moving closer. No, you seem to be talking more direct. Okay. Uh, yeah, wow. All right. Uh, okay, well, I'm, I'll just take this time out to shout out to a few people. I see you, Corey Eichen. I got you. Hi, Corey. I'm Alyssa Riley. Paige Smith, hello. Uh, Mark Lee Pettiford, I'm still muffled. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't know what I can do about that. I think it's a matter of the weather or it's a matter of uh, what's happening with, with the doctor, with the doctor, maybe he's trying to fix it. Uh, all right, talking to the speaker, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> uh -huh. Not great. Uh, this muffle a little. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Hi, Doctor. Wow. Keep going because I'm still having trouble being able to hear it. I'm sorry, man. Um, uh, yes, I, I was born and raised in Minneapolis. Yes, because um, I'm not hearing you. Okay, I think who go ahead with the questions? I'll be right back. Work with Someone's Prince. asking who would you have liked to have seen work with yeah, Prince? Well, there was a, a couple of your um, Levi and Prince talked about working with Terrence Trent Darby, but um, uh, Levi said, Prince, we we ought to do Terrence's next record, and Prince said. We're not going to give our sound away to him. <laughs> so I would have liked to have seen it because I think that uh, that Terrence or uh, Sananda Matraya, as he goes by now, um, I, I think it was great. I, I, I liked a lot of his records. Um, I guess I would have liked to have seen a proper... Um, uh, like uh, like I'd like would have liked to seen him and Lenny Lenny Kravitz actually do something together, you know, um, like I, I, maybe they did. Who never know? Who knows? But um, okay, uh, yeah. So those are two people I would have loved to have seen work with Prince. But I think that those are two people who are also very influenced by him. And yes, uh huh. And uh, so it could have been redundant. Who knows? I just. Would have liked to have seen it happen. How about Billy Williams, Patrick Corrigan of Smashing Pumpkins? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think they might be a little bit too similar uh, in 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 the way they work. Like they might they might they might have too much too many of the same sensibilities to um to to really get along like that. Sometimes that happens. I, I imagine it would have happened between them. Um, did you get to say goodbye to Prince before he passed? Not really. No. And, and and it bothers me. I really, and more so, I can say right now, uh, with full honesty, that I didn't really know how much I loved him till, till he passed. Like I really, I, I I, it really forced me into a place where I had to think about 
a, a lot of our time together, you know? And um, it breaks my heart that, that he died in an elevator by himself. I think the last thing he would have wanted to, to be, <laughs> uh, the last things he would, would have, the last things he would have wanted to, he would not have wanted to contemplate the idea of dying with nobody there. I mean, that just, I'm never going to be able to emotionally handle that, really, if I'm just going to be honest. Uh, Corey Wong would have been awesome. Well, Corey certainly tried to get himself on the radar. And of course, that's, you know, he, and as anybody should, Corey tried, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, and I, I, I guess I'm not saying anything else other than uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of guys who, who would have coveted a position to play rhythm guitar behind Prince. Uh, so, you know, and um, I mean, that could have worked, but um, uh, it, it just wasn't meant to uh, meant to pass. And Corey didn't. Corey is doing fine for himself. Corey Wong, he's got his own his own identity, his own brand. And uh, did you know John Blackwell? Uh, a little bit. He'd come through bunkers and sit in from time to time. When I met John Blackwell, he was playing with Cameo, and I was playing with Chaka Khan, and we were doing a uh, playing a triple bill in Indianapolis with Ann Nesby, and um, that was the first time I met John Blackwell. And the whole gig. <laughs> Larry Blackman was yelling at him, and I felt so bad for him. And I thought he was sticking. His pocket was tight. He was, you know, he had the aggression. But, you know, drumming behind a drummer, who's a great drummer, is is, is not easy to do. And um, so, you know, because they had a lot of very specific ideas about what worked and what doesn't. Larry Blackman played all the bass and all the drums on those cameo records. So, and he at some point he sat down on the kit, and it was like, man. I mean, you know, clearly John was a talented individual, but nobody's <clears throat> gonna play cameo like like Larry Blackman's gonna play cameo. He was so aggressive and so gritty with it, and it's like, wow, uh, okay, I like I got to hear the difference. But um, you know, I think that um, uh, yeah, he was John was gonna was going to do do well for himself. I think almost no matter where he went. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, he was—he and Prince were fortunate to meet each other, and uh, I think that Prince said to me once that Patty LaBelle was a little bit—he uh, said that Patty LaBelle was a little upset that that he had taken John away from her, and I said, "Did she say that?" He said, "No, but she had little ways of letting you know she was upset." Like I asked to borrow her, her hot sauce, and like she was like, "Oh, I just ran out," you know, like <laughs> like she wouldn't let him. <laughs> I was like, wow, all right. That, well, that's a funny story, you know. But um, now, speaking of funny stories, and thank you for being able while I was having some audio issues. Uh, people want to know about Prince's funny side, and if he ever pranked you at time, I prank pranked you at times. I know you told he told one story about you at the conga room, but what other uh, things did he show his funny side to, or pranking you on? Uh, I don't know. I mean, really, um, he didn't really play with me like that, I think, because <laughs> the physical repercussions could have gone not in, in his favor. So he, I wasn't really one that he pranked around too much with. Also, 
I, I, I see. I don't see myself this way, but I come off like a very serious person. Apparently, I, I don't know that about me. Like, I feel like I'm kind of a silly person, you know. Uh, but um, uh, I, a couple of times, uh, and not often, because I gave Prince his proper respect as my employer and and as as my mentor. But sometimes when, when he joked around with me, it didn't go so well. Uh, we were at the. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I'm, I've got to remember the name of the club. It was in England, uh, the Emporium, and the 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 show at Wembley. I was using a new brand of drumsticks because uh, somebody in the accounting department dropped the ball on the people who were who on the company I was working with. So we were getting ready to leave and go on tour. I I, I called Zildjian and they said, "Well, yeah, we can get, get, send you some sticks." I had never used their sticks before, but I knew it was going to run out. Right in the middle of the intro to Endorphin Machine, I hit the snare and the stick snaps in half. And Prince looked back like, like what just happened? You know? And um, he knew that I, I didn't make mistakes often. And, uh, and uh, so the first thing he says to me when I get to the Emporium, he's like, ah, <laughs> laugh. He starts clowning me. I heard that tonight. I said, "Well, what did you hear? You, said, you did, did? Did I hear a snare drum go missing during the intro?" I said, "Yeah, my, well," and I didn't get into all the, the intricacies and you know what else. Prince never wanted to hear a bunch of excuses. I'm like, I'm using the brand of stick that that I'm not used to, and I didn't know they were so fragile. And Prince continued to to, to make light of my situation, and I remember. <laughs> <clears throat> moving a little closer to him and saying, whatever, man. And he backed up <laughs> and was like, well, we're going to go on in about a half an hour. And he just kind of scurried away. So, <laughs> like, you know, I I, I didn't mean to, 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 to grandstand or be disrespectful, but I wasn't in the mood. And it, it, I was as, as, I mean, making mistakes is something I didn't like to do. And so he kind of, he made it worse for a minute, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I, we had very few moments like that. I was not uh, a, I, I, I don't have the spirit of rebellion in me. My thought always was, if I don't like what's going on, I can go home. You know? Right. Yeah. Someone has this question. Do you have any cherished, aside from memories, obviously, um, do you have any cherished items given to you by Prince? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get into it, though. You don't have to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. We can go to back to Diamonds and Pearls. Okay. Where after Graffiti Bridge, which was, although the critics, it was on a lot of critics' top 10 list for albums. The movie, not so much. So here it was, supposedly, now here's Diamonds and Pearls. Prince is considered out. He needs a huge hit. He needs all this stuff. And Dom's Pearls delivers. But also what you have is Get Off. The original version sounded a lot different than what was uh, released later on. Um, and that was, it was Silky. I uh, can't remember his name right now who made the remix. But the original version that was on the birthday vinyl for Get Off it morphed into kind of like a faster speed by the time it was released. 
Was it him just messing around with it a little bit more, or how did that came to be? You know, Steve Silk Hurley that did the remix. Now that I remember it, yeah, he dropped that in Vogue sample in there, and either I or Fritz, I still don't know which one of us it is, doing that that shuffle beat because during that time he called me in. He and Levi would call me in. I'd play eight bars, and they kicked me back out. So. <laughs> Um, I, I think that he was looking for the right way to present that song. I mean, it, it, I mean, uh, there's. I told um, Mobin Azar from the BBC, who came to town to ask, "What, what do you think's in the vault? Like, what do you think that it thing should be?" I, I don't know if you've seen this interview, uh, but he did a special on the BBC about Prince's vault. He came to my house and he interviewed me in my residence. And uh, he asked me, what do you think's in there? I said, oh, is that from KRS-One? I did not know, Alyssa. Thank you for correcting me. Um, I said, there's a lot of versions of songs that you already know that were inferior as far as Prince's standards went. Like, he, he didn't always get it right the first time. You know, there's a lot of remakes. Like he would try a song over and over again in different ways. And as remix culture caught up with him, you know, he just started farming it out. I mean, he was doing it by himself and you know, in uh, you know, in the eighties and whatnot. But um he started wanting to work with people who uh had modern experience in doing it. And um yeah, and so I think that get off was a, it was an experiment. Like he knew there was a single in there somewhere. But it was moving too slow for the dance floor. But it was the right tempo for something else. So I think they together they found a, a, a real good balance. I don't think he just sent it to Steve still early. I think that there was a, a bit of a negotiation. There were steps in between. Because I don't yeah. know if the anvil the, the anvil snare was already in the programming or not. I don't remember. But you're talking about that vinyl version that was the white cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing it. <sighs> but Bless you. I don't think I may have heard it once or twice, but by the time I looked up, the 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 graphic went 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 gold and and uh, and purple, and you know there were smiley faces and I was like, what? oh, is this the same song? I put it on? No, this is not the same song. All right, and that was you know the real introduction uh, into the world for 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 the new power generation. You know, I, I'd come home from bunkers and I'd be sitting in my mom and dad's front room you know exhausted and be channel surfing and i see myself on mtv like oh, oh yeah. uh, and keep moving <laughs> now speaking of mtv sorry i took a lot of naps at paisley park you, you're darn right a lot of times you couldn't leave i'm sorry i just needed to get that out. no problem i'm gonna get to that one now introduction and MTV and that performance of Get Off at the MTV Video Music Awards. Uh, what are your memories from that aside from the pants and the orgy that seemed to be going on around you? I'm sorry, what, what, what are you asking me? What was my impression? No, like that experience, because that that's what, you know, Prince supposedly was out and about after Graffiti Bridge, not doing so well at the box office. The reintroduction of Prince was Get Off. And of course, that Video Music Awards performance. Oh, sure. That was the real deal. Yeah. Um, now, how, how did it went off for you? Go ahead. 
Oh, wow. I'll say, well, I guess I'll, I'll just tell you. Uh, we were the appropriate appropriate amount of nervous. I mean, anytime you're doing TV, you really don't want anything to go wrong. There's nothing, you, live television, nothing you can do about it. So we were well rehearsed. We rehearsed at Paisley for, you know, a few days before we went out, out to Los Angeles for it. Um, uh, we didn't know about the outfit until he cut across the prayer circle to leave the room and his backside was visible. <laughs> he like he came from like kind of the the toiletry area of his dressing room and walked into the circle face front. And after that, I think Alan Leeds opened the door and said, like in the movie, like, hey, uh, it's time. And Prince cut through the circle out the door, and we all looked at each other like, he got it. All right. And, uh, you know, at at the camera blocking, with Dick Clark hanging around, he didn't wear it. He wore just, you know, something else that was fly. And uh, uh, I think um, also the dancers in in those body stockings, they kept it way more toned down during camera blocking. By the time, <laughs> by the time we shot it, uh, I mean, I can, I couldn't say what was going on back there, but I heard a lot from the rest of the band who looked back. They're like, "Man, did you see so and so with the?" And then, oh, let me tell you what else. And I, and I heard all the stories, but I was too focused on getting my camera time and you know smiling and mugging. So uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but I mean, if you make a, a video that looks like Caligula. You're gonna to have to up it one when it comes time to go live, and you know nobody went more live than Prince did. <clears throat> and you guys had no idea, and of course he had Tony and Damon and Kirk, and they had to like cover him when you guys were doing that rehearsal. But of course you didn't know about the outfit when they're going down on top of them. No, but uh, also to be fair, um, it was it it was it was a sheer opaque material. He didn't have right. his naked buttocks out on TV. There was material in, in those spots. You just, yes. it's like, like the equivalent of like nude stocking material. So. It had that effect though, the effect that he wanted. That's all that got. matters. But I'll tell you what, and uh, you know, I, what I knew from where I was sitting uh, when we shot it, I knew that when, it, see the problem is Prince was so calculated and specific down to the last detail about most things. You rarely saw things go askew with him. But when he went to grab the microphone and his sleeve got caught, that was a wardrobe malfunction, and it it, it blew his concentration. That that performance could have been so much better. But I, when I look back at it, I see the anger on his face. Because he just touched it. But one of those, that material was like, there was space in it. And when he pulled his hand back, the mic moved and hit him in the, in the mouth. And you could see the change on his face if you look hard enough. But I, where I was at, I was looking like, ooh, I knew it. I knew it. He recovered quite well, but well, yes. he's Prince. <laughs> yeah. But he may have recovered on stage, but in his mind. Oh, he was pissed. Oh, man. For sure. Yeah. 
I mean, that's not by the end of it. That's not what we were talking about. So it worked. But yeah, he was pissed. And if I remember correctly, you guys recorded Arsenio, but Arsenio was actually recorded the day was was recorded before the Video Music Awards performance, although it aired afterwards. Correct? I, I, I you know, go. I, I can't. I'm not. I sure. think it was recorded before. But you had just as you said, is how you get everything so meticulous is like he knew. Let me bring that outfit to the Video Music Awards, and for Arsenio, we're gonna bring some different stuff. And the Arsenio performance that was another thing that was smart because he had the entire episode dedicated towards himself, which was the first one to do that for late night television. Even though he didn't do an interview and had Patty LaBelle do it, because that's the that's I, I hate on that show was because it ruined our chances of doing a, a United States tour on that record. I, that's really? one of my only regrets. We went back to his house in LA to watch to watch the show. And um, you know, it was it was incredible. We were watching it and oh man, this is great. And I said, I said, when do we go on to, when, do we, when do we tour the States? And Prince looked and said, we just did. We just played in front of 50 million people. And I was like, oh man, I don't get to tour the United States. You know, and it was until Act One. I like that was the first time I got to really get out. You know, I mean, we we had gone to Australia and Japan and spent a lot of time in Europe and the UK. But like I felt like the real glory was to come home. And I would speculate that he wanted to be sure by the time he toured the States that there wasn't going to be one empty seat in the house because the Love Sexy tour was not a successful tour in the States. Uh, if I remember correctly, somebody said he lost a right. million dollars on that tour. They did lose money in the U.S., yes. And some of the nights, that light configuration would hit corners of the, of the auditorium and there wouldn't be nobody there. I think Levi told me that. So they started, you know, they started uh, covering a lot of seats in those venues. And... Um, I wanted to go to that show when he played. Uh, I think he played either the Met Center or the Civic Center here, but my friend couldn't get his dad's station wagon. So I, I didn't get to see Love Sexy. I never got to see Prince perform any time before I joined the band. The first time I got to watch him perform, I was performing with him. <laughs> so, yeah. That's something else. Now, when it comes to it, when you did your first tour of the US, you guys hit LA. And of course, it was, you know, you guys had to cancel it just because of his voice when you guys did an after show in the Bay Area. But it was oh, right around. I think huh? the club called DV8. Yes. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. No. And it's like um, with the LA shows, there was a little bit of tension more so going on because you had the Rodney King civil trial happening. Oh, boy. Now, do you remember that and how how it felt around that during during those LA shows, especially the first one? I mean, I'm sorry. Tell me the question one more time. Like, because those for those LA the LA Act One tour. Yeah, it was right around when the Rodney King civil trial verdict was supposed to be announced. Sure, there's a little bit of tension in the air, at least for us as fans. Uh, Did sure. you guys feel that? Um, when you were playing uh, the amphitheater and playing Glam Slam? Uh, probably a little bit, but I mean, when you enter Prince's world, 
a lot of stuff you got to leave behind. <laughs> you know, like we weren't really staying up on current events. We were trying to be excellent and not lose our jobs. <laughs> you know, it was a very intense situation to be in. I mean, I do remember what I do remember was going out to LA for something with Prince, and I'm sitting in the hotel and uh, the news that Kurt Cobain had just killed himself came on. That I remember. But uh, the Rodney King thing, I mean, we, uh, uh, I, I, you have to have laser focus when, when, you, when you're working with Prince. I, didn't, I just didn't have room to take it right. in. You know? Okay. Just interesting on that. And then another it's question. So I'm long, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, another question that someone had, they want to know what it was like practicing for Montreux 2009. Um, uh, I was, was like Montreux 2009. Right. So I, they're saying and then. I mean, unless they know something they're not supposed to, which was that we were supposed to. Yeah. And then they were, and then during it, Prince finding out about MJ's passing, unlocking himself for days in Paisley. Why, while they, Sonny and Michael, ultimately never made it to Montreux, and whether they've ever they have touched down on anything uh, during that time period at all. Uh, so yes, people didn't know they were going to be part of Montreux 2009, but then, you know, the passing of Michael, I guess, mixed that stuff up. It didn't have no. Uh, that's not what mixed it all up. Uh, you know, I mean, to be 100% honest, uh, I felt like his surrounding staff at the time, uh, they, I think well, one of two things happened. Either uh, they didn't realize that we had been on that train before and that we were not newbies. And I don't think that they, I mean, to just spit it out, like they didn't really take care of us right. Hmm. And um, and it, it for me, it started to be an issue about money, but it, that short that was short lived. Um, what I decided was that it was better. It was better for me to just respectfully decline than to get into some kind of argument with Prince about money. That's not my style. I I, I wanted Prince to know that he could call me anytime. Um, and that it that I mean all those times we recorded with him, we never asked. But Sonny and I went on the good faith that we would be compensated, and sometimes we were, and sometimes we weren't. And, but I mean, it's all it all comes out in the wash. But that was a situation where uh, the what was being offered to us, I didn't feel was fair. If we got to play an entire ninety minutes, just me and Sonny and Prince at Montreux, and he stood to make. A substantial more uh, a substantial amount more money to do it. I didn't feel like the figures were reflecting correctly. So, sure. and not only that, I got a schedule I'm keeping with Soul Asylum. I can only tell them, oh, I got to go out of town for uh, so many times. Like I, you know what I mean? Like I got a job. I'm not really looking for a job, and he's trying to give me one. You know, so sure. I just had to. And it, the funny part was the guy they call, they called me. To try to talk me into it, who said, "Listen, if it's a money thing, we can talk about it." And I started to say something. I went, "Ah, no, no, no." I know how Prince feels about people who get embroiled in battles with him over business. You know, and it's not uh, <clears throat> uncommon to any other person in his position. It's like, "Oh, I see. It's about money." You know, and at that point, I'm opening myself up to an entire dialogue about 
all the years that we worked together and and um uh how my life would have been different without him in it like i could have opened myself up to a, a lot of uh scrutiny that would have made him and i both better so i left it alone i didn't want to do it they were rehearsing other drummers at paisley when prince found out about mj somebody walked in sonny was there they were waiting on this drummer to show up and um yeah and prince just broke down because he was supposed to play the dakota that night you know it was the anniversary of purple rain and i got like a little message like hey we're gonna give you some news i think it was um cindy blackman i think was actually going to be part of it at that time but it's cool. interesting to hear of why you why um montreux 2009 that you weren't uh brought in for that and yes it was john blackwell eventually but of course even with that you had um cindy blackman that was going to be part of that and of course that performance never happened at the dakota that night he canceled it when he heard of michael's passing I um, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. <clears throat> I just found, found it interesting that, you know, the Montreux 2009 and then that taking place. Um, another interesting interesting question I'm seeing, I know we're hitting like the two hour and 30 minute mark here. So I don't know. I, listen, I, yeah, I, but my, my wife is playing games on her phone, but it's, it's going to be time for me to call it pretty soon. Okay. Um, let, can I do something right quick? Can Absolutely. I do, can I do a quick sweep here? Yes, I remember the show in, in uh, 1993 in Chicago where uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner came, and so did Buddy Miles. Buddy Miles brought one of Jimi Hendrix's guitars to the club for Prince to play. He opened the case, and Prince and Levi looked in it, and Prince was like, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not touching Jimmy's guitar w without his personal permission. <laughs> That's like kissing his woman. I, I can't do that. And so... Uh, Buddy took the guitar back home <laughs> after he came up and sang them changes and something else. Malcolm jumped on stage. Yeah, I remember that night vividly because I was having a big, 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 big fight with my ex-wife and still had to get on stage and play after all that nonsense. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember it. Not for the right reasons, but yeah, oh, definitely. It first choose my outfit. Yeah, more or less. I mean, they, you know, it was a collaboration between him and the and the wardrobe department and Helen Hyatt and Stacia Lang and everybody who, you know, who, who, who kept us looking so, uh, you know, colorful and eccentric. <laughs> I'm sorry. What were you about to ask me, man? Oh, for sure. Because I saw another question. Now, people were asking, did Maite really get along with the band at first? Or was that just part of an act of going on that there was, like, conflict? Uh, you know what? When I did that interview, that piece of pizza on my chest, I was being honest. Uh, okay. And I'll say this, that I'll never be that honest on film again. Because you don't know where people are going to end up. This ends up being the woman that he married. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was not a strategic move on my own part. Not that I caught any... Richard said, just tell the truth. Just be honest. You know, and at that time, I, my mind was on what we could do as a band. I didn't see what 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 value she added because I didn't know what their relationship was. I didn't know where things were going at that time. But shortly after that was when I heard Seven, when I heard the 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 influence on the music, and the, all these CDs showed up in Studio A, 
that were just music from 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 Egypt, from Saudi Arabia. Like he was really, I, I got the tie later. That interview was premature. And I, I would like to say, <laughs> I like it to be stricken from the record, from every tablet and goblet. But uh, yeah, I be careful. D, DNA Lounge, you're right. That was the name of that club, DNA. Not DVA. I, I, oh, I, my, I didn't hear somebody correctly. What's the name of this club? I said, DNA. DBA? All right. Is what I thought they said. Sorry. <laughs> now, someone wants to know it's the Kurt Loader question, as I call it. Were you able to keep any of the outfits? Oh, you know what? Uh, I mean, they gave us a chance to, to, to go through the road cases and take whatever we wanted. But a lot of those clothes had been. You know, I, I mean, when you're sending stuff to the cleaners every night or every other night, clothes gets da- they get damaged. You know, they, 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 they. You know, they, it, none of it was really wearable at that point. You know, so I think I may have taken one shirt, no hats, one shirt, maybe no one. Hats. I'm not sure. It might be in this closet. I don't know, but um. I'm not going rummaging. <laughs> That'll be for a future episode. Rummaging with Michael. We're rummaging, yeah. <laughs> now, curious, because I know we will be letting you go soon. And you guys get in some last minute questions. We'll try to get to it. And you can maybe do a quick round. Now, when it came to um, the Exodus era, how did you come up with Torah Torah? Was it just a way of kind of screwing Warner Brothers, like I'm not part of this album, but I am part of this album. What what came up with the whole Tora Tora persona? Um, I'm not, I mean, I know that there's a movie called Tora Tora Tora, and it's about a sneak attack, I think of the Japanese. It's in a, I don't know if it's about Pearl Harbor or not, but I, I get the sense that, that's, that he thought that he was, you know, it had something to do with him being, you know, in costume, and you know, like an alter ego of sorts, and uh, like I, I don't know, like like it was it was some kind of a sneak attack. What we were doing at that time. That's about that's my interpretation. I don't really know. Okay, it's interesting. I just I've always been curious about that, just because it was another thing, especially when you're going from Prince to the symbol and then you're going with the mpg and now you're under tour tour it just was interested about that so uh, uh who was cherry 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 was about an actual person sorry uh no let's uh, go through that. Actually, he told me he's like that song's about this girl who uh who got killed in the hood um and but he um oh hey martin kember the shy town what's up man um the, the, it's kind of a true story that's all. But um, Prince changed the name to Rosanda uh, after he found out Chili from TLC what, what her real name was. She came out and she hung out with us for a few days. The Prince said he asked her, don't you want a pair of jeans or something? Like, you always got to just dress like that. You know, but, you know, she, she was a young person. So she was expecting Prince to maybe have some baggy wides on, you know, like not to be always looking like he's getting ready to go on stage. But that ain't Prince. Prince was ready every day, all day, you know? You're welcome. I know it's probably, it's night, it's night, night time, Diana Parker. I see you. You're welcome. Um, uh, so that's, yeah, uh, Cherry Cherry is a, is a true story. 
Um, now, what? Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm just looking. Would you spend the night yeah. at Paisley Park? No, I would not. <laughs> Ever talk about God with Prince? Uh, maybe indirectly. And I mean, uh, <laughs> sure. I mean, if, if you're talking about music, you talk about God anyway, because you're talking about creation. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, but I mean, I, I think that I, I remember talking to Levi at one point. He said, what you be thinking about when Prince is holding prayer meeting? <laughs> and I said, I'm just focused on my creator. He said, yeah, me too. I don't want to dip, fall and dip into the wrong, you know. <laughs> I don't want to be... Uh, 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 I want. I need to know who I'm. Who I'm worshiping. He said Prince could be on the. <laughs> Prince might be on the. He might be saying the Heavenly Father in heaven, and, and he might be thinking, "Bless us, O great beast, make us perfect like you." And like we don't know what his inner dialogue is. You're talking about somebody who had a, a who liked to 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 entertain dark forces. You know. I mean, I'm just being real now. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just saying. If you know anything about Prince or his music, that he liked he liked to dabble. Uh, and, and with what? I, I cannot I, I don't know. But you can feel it in the music. Uh, he, he liked to explore. So, you know, when we were praying together, I definitely was <laughs> I knew who I was praying to. That's all I could really say. <laughs> Uh, are you sick of me yet, doctor? No, not uh, at all. I know you're seeing some of the questions. Go ahead and answer them if you want. Uh, what, do you, what do you feel is Prince's best drumming on record? Uh, I really like the first Madhouse record. I, I think that uh, another standout track to me is like Tambourine. I think there's some really great drumming going on on that, on that track. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, there's a few more. Um, I'm sure. I, soft and wet. I like. I like his drumming on that. Um, yes, by the family. I think he's drumming great there. So just a few, Badra. Uh, what do you wish you had been able to do? Just say thank you properly. And I was trying to explain while you were off camera how, when I was early on at Paisley, that I, you know, I. I would bring questions to Prince that that you're not supposed to bring to a superstar. I'd ask about like the flight itinerary, and you know what we were gonna do, and and he would look at me like, "Do you have any idea who you're speaking to?" Like I'm not, I'm, I'm riding the Concorde to Europe. You're not. I'm not even flying the same day as you. Why are you asking me these questions? But instead, he'd just say, "I don't know. You should probably ask Therese." He sent me to Therese, and after a while, I figured it out. Like, wow. It must have taken a lot of restraint for him not to just completely just go straight off, you know. But uh, and and I never did get to thank him for accommodating, accommodating, you know, my greenness and my my naivete, because that that had to frustrate him on some level. But I just didn't know where I was at. How how could I? I'm I'm, I'm living in the city where nothing happens, <laughs> you know. So. <clears throat> I tell people, they're like, what was it like? I'm like, you rehearsed in a cornfield for days on end. That's what it was like. <laughs> uh, 
So that's one thing I never got to do, you know. And, you know, around the time that Maite's book came out, I know she caught a lot of static for it, you know. And I want to say, I, I, I want to thank her for, uh, I sent her an email expressing my support because that's her story to tell too. And I know a lot of people got mad and they can get mad at this if they want. I, you know, wouldn't be the first time for me. I'm, I'm a known button pusher. Uh, but so I sent her that. I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in your corner. I support that. You know, it, you, it's not good to keep everything you've lived through on the inside like that. You, that's, you know, let it out. You know, have your catharsis. And those people didn't have to buy that book. If they, if they were against it, they should have kept their money. But um, in, in the email she wrote back to me, you know, she said, because uh, I think I, I told us that I didn't really know how I feel, felt about him, you know, and, until, until, until he was gone. And she said, she said in her email back to me that uh, I can tell you that he loved you a lot, you know, that he really, he really loved you. And uh, it was nice to get that confirmation. I mean, he showed it in many ways that, uh, we're cryptic, you know. I may have not picked up on it because he was not uh, really that type of dude, generally. But so she, she, she gave me a, a bit of catharsis myself. She, she gave a little to me that day. Um, Someone's asking, what were some of your favorite drum solos? They love gold. But what are your, some of your favorite drum solos that you were able to do recording? Oh, I don't know. It was always aggravating. Prince was always pushing me to do more than I wanted. Uh, so, you know, it's like I'm not that guy. I don't really, I don't play for the sake of self-glory. I play to improve the music. That's just, I cooperate. I, I like to be a part of things. I like to move things along in a positive direction. But he would always, I mean, I, I read somewhere that Lisa Coleman had the same sort of issue. He was always pushing her to like kind of go out, be virtuosic. And she really... She didn't care to. Um, but do I keep, keep in touch with Miko? I wish. I wish I kept in touch with Miko. <laughs> he was uh, a great friend to me on that first tour, uh, on the new tour. I, I, I really I, I really enjoyed spending time with him. He, he was funny. He was engaging. He taught me a lot. He, he taught me how to really respect Prince's audience because early on, I'm just in my young mind, just doing whatever I'm doing. And people are asking, I'm staying away from fans and I'm, you know, not signing albums because I didn't play on that. Why do you want my autograph? And Miko finally said, hey man, you need to change your attitude towards all this. Like, this is for them, this ain't for you. Like these fans, they're loyal, man, you know? And they'll follow you wherever you go from this point. So, you know, be mindful of that. Like Levi and Miko, they gave me a lot of, real advice. They hazed me too because I was a young one around. But you know, uh but they they gave me a a, a, a lot. They gave me a lot. I, I I it was almost like being in the army. You just went where they went. Like any time to do something, I see them get up and go, I just go, you know? Like whatever it's like at, at, at an army base. It's how do you find out wh where the commissary is at? Just follow where just follow the group, the group, the crowd. So they they did a lot. To, to, to groove me for, for that experience. Now, speaking of grooving, groovy potential on Hit and Run Phase 2, that's you uncredited on drums, isn't it? Yeah, he was kind enough to let me know he recycled my drum track. I'm like, you okay. could have called me. 
I, I just live up the road. I, I still, I live about 15 minutes away from Paisley Park. That's why it was so easy for us to get there and do things, you know? Um, but uh, can you share the spat that me, Prince Amico got into that rehearsal? I, <laughs> I mean, I thought it was documented. If, she, if they know there was a spat, how do they not know what it was about? Can you not tell? Do you know, doctor? I've seen the video. We should have Miko on and we can have Miko tell his side of the story. Yeah. I, I think that's that's his story to tell, isn't it? Okay. Right. We'll leave that yeah, we alone. But yeah, um, the reason I knew about Groovy Potential is Chris James, uh, one of the engineers, hit me up on that, saying that he loved your groove and tones on it. Oh, so. well, I mean, your groove is kind of like your face. It's just... That's what you got. You 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 work with it. <laughs> so we could we he couldn't hear the dialogue going on on the tape. Long story short, I don't know what the real beef was about, but uh, at some point um, we were we were I think it's in the middle of kiss. Uh, Miko stopped to like. Uh, to move a tone knob or something. Like he checked something on his guitar. He stopped playing and uh and uh and stopped uh moving. Like they were in the middle of like a move, like a choreographed thing that was happening there. So and Prince noticed both and and when we stopped, Prince said something to Miko about it. And it was it, I mean I don't think it was really even about what was happening there. They could have been fighting over some girl. Uh you know who knows? I mean, really, but it escalated quickly. The prince, you know, yelling at Nico and Nico, you know, telling, him, "Come out, come out, you know, like come outside." Prince was like, you know, "I tell you, limb for limb, you don't know who you, you know." Limb, and Nico was just saying, uh, "Like I'm going, I'm not going to sock you on your own property. You think I'm stupid? We can go across the street to the Glens and we can box there, you know." And it was just, you know, a yelling match. And Nico left the room, and Prince left the room, I think. And me and Rosie and Sunny and uh, oh, not Sonny, uh, Levi and, and Fink were just kind of, all right, well, that's probably it for today. So I don't think we went back to rehearsal that day. I think we, what I heard was Miko went to the hotel he was staying at and started packing. And that, you know, uh, Prince called him and they, they, made, they, they made up. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's I, I'm just looking, I'm like, Miko is like six foot three. Prince, what you gonna do? <laughs> he had a mean bark. He was, I mean, he was hollering, son, if you ever, you know, <laughs> like, Miko was just walking away, like, yeah, yeah, I hear all that talking. You don't really want none of this. And he just headed out of the sound stage. <laughs> no, I was not blown away, Badra, because I, I've seen Prince do incredible things. And no cameras were running. I, I, that may have been incredible, but because of what I think took away from it was the agenda, the, the Hall of Fame solo. Like, he set out to make a mark that he didn't really have to. Like, I felt like he was pushing it. Like, that was, that, that was a bridge too far to me. Like, don't do that. You know? Like, you're great already. Like, you don't, you don't let these, these critics... Yeah, and don't let the fact that every time Rolling Stone comes out with an uh, with a issue about the hundred greatest guitar players and they completely snub you, like don't let that control you. Like I really think he did that to, to like to get even in a way, in a weird way. But like you're playing all 
Bean in front of George Harrison's son, and that kid doesn't know what to do. He ain't, he ain't done nothing to you, Prince. Why are you going after him so deep? Tom Petty's standing there looking confused. You know, I like I don't, I, you know, I, I just don't feel like. I mean, honestly, what I'm feeling right now about my impression about it was that he showed a weakness in that moment because he felt like he had to go that far to prove a point. I'm like, you're Prince. He should have felt the way Eric Clapton felt the way about him. Somebody asked Eric Clapton, oh, what, how's it feel to be the greatest guitar player in the world? He said, I don't know. Ask Prince. That should have been enough for Prince. He, sh he shouldn't have had to go on TV and make an example of white people's greatest legends. <laughs> like, he, he didn't have to do that. He did it. And, uh, you know, he shut a lot of people up with it. But me, I'll tell you what I'd take over that, Badra. I'd take the solo he played on the Trojan horse um, uh, uh, bootleg on Raven to the Joy Fantastic. First time I heard that, my neck snapped. I didn't know Prince could play like that. That was the, the true testament. Prince shouldn't have to prove himself to nobody. He should be doing it all for his creator. And I felt like that was a misstep on that Hall of Fame. Like he was pandering. Like you, you're above that. You didn't need to do that. You already Prince. You got more hits than anybody standing on this stage. You don't. You don't have to do it. So that's my feeling. You can disagree. Interesting. You know those people in on it. All right, we're, we're not gonna be able. To, what What do you got for me? Yes, guys. You know, of course, they're talking about that. Um, the Hall of Fame rehearsal, looking at other things. Regardless, um, there's just so much we can go on for. I don't want to slam slam anything into it. I'm trying to make sure that, that if anyone has any questions. We have it. Yes. Now, did you ever take it as a diss at all during old school company where he, he name checks you at the end, but he goes, now they're just bland like the drummer. Because I know that candy, <laughs> you know, no more candy for you is not a thing for Candy Dolfer, but um, Alan Leeds took it as such and Prince is upset by it. When it came to your name check of now they're just bland like the drummer, what did you think of that? First off, by the time I heard about it, it was probably a year and a half after. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, I don't listen to. I go through phases where I listen to Prince, but usually when I'm listening, it's something old, you know. Like it takes me back to when I first discovered his music. Like that's the place I kind of like to sit with it. If I listen to the era where I played, then I get too, I get critical about things I can't control. I can't, I, any mistakes I made or or decisions I made that I wish I did something different, then it becomes just an analysis of my own performance. So I don't listen to a lot of the music that I made with Prince. And um, uh, I guess, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, the last record I, I really paid attention to was probably uh, Musicology. Like, I think I might have even had it at some point, but I knew about, uh, I, I knew, I think I probably listened to Raven to the Joy Fantastic. I think the, the point where it became something I wasn't interested in was on the New Power Soul record, which I know a lot of people like, but for me, I was just like, uh, he's on a different journey now. I, this is not, he's not making this music for somebody like me. 
And that's fine. You didn't have to. Um, so I'm saying I don't keep a lot of those records around. I'd never heard this song. Groovy Potential is a, just a myth in my mind. <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't take it. I, I don't feel like uh, it was a diss. I, uh, yeah. I don't know. But I don't it it probably, he probably had a lot less kind things to say about me over the years. You know, I don't I don't care. He's Prince. He can say what he wants. And I'm me and I can say what I want. So, what, 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 you know, it's a free country. Not, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Prince Prince would talk mess about everyone. I'm sure he said stuff about me, but it's all it's all good. You know, you just got to take it as such. He, he liked to talk. That's all. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for anybody who uh, has questions they really want to bring to me, is it okay if I redirect them to my Facebook page? They can catch up with me there. Absolutely. I, I'm pretty good about responding if you inbox me. So, yeah, hit me up. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'll ask anything I feel is within reason. I mean, I'll answer anything right. I feel is within reason. I don't really, I don't, I don't want to speculate too much, but I'll give you facts and, and I'll share what I can. Um, and I always appreciate it when, like, uh, on my on the Funk and Mary fan page or my private page, where you chime in with information that we don't know. I always love that, you know. So it's, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I try to be helpful because there's a lot of questions, and it's and I realized I spent time in, in a world that was off limits mm. to to most people. Most people will never be able to say they were where I was at doing what I was doing, and it, it's I know it's it's it's. It was a unique thing to be a part of. And um, it was just right. as incredible to watch from the outside as it was to be a participant. So I feel like I can you know, dispel uh, a, a lot of rumors and explain a lot of technical things that happen, you know? And, and give, you know, uh, 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 an accurate reading rather than, it, it, speculation is not my thing, but, but I, I can, a lot of facts I recall. Absolutely. Well, that's my invitation, all y'all. Get at me if you want. Sorry. Go yes. Ahead. No, no, no. Like, we're going to be putting it on there for sure. We'll make sure when we add this on that we give your Facebook page that you want directed to as well. Now people are wanting you to write a book as well. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, that's Anytime how somebody come out with a book, y'all go haywire. Y'all ain't going to roast me on the spit like that. Mm -hmm. There'll be other things. I want to pre I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, thank thanks to Mike Fago, thanks to Heidi Bader um, for making these things happen. But I appreciate you, Michael, so much for doing this. You're welcome. Yeah. I don't, you know, I it's funny because I had to decide. I, I was turning down a lot of interviews. I was going through a phase before COVID, and now it's like, yeah, why not? I got the time. What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk, man. I'm, I'm hoping we got something out of it. I'm hoping I didn't, you know, uh, douse your spirits or, you know, make you feel some kind of way you don't want to feel about Prince. But if, if you want the truth, I'm the one to come to. I'm not going, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to weave yarns. I'm just going to tell you what happened, you know? No, we'll definitely have to have you back on again for sure. Okay, maybe um, not three hours next time, but uh, I mean, no, I no, no, no. I apologize. It's uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, man, I did more talking than you did. So that's what I like, though. 
set up the questions and you tell the stories. Well, ask me back and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll chop it up a little bit more. Don't feel, yeah. Feel free to get at me, doctor. All right. I appreciate it, Michael. You have a good night. Thank your you wife too. for your, for her patience as well. God bless y'all. All right. Okay. Thank you guys so much. We are going to do a quick um, after show just to get on. Even though it's been three hours, I think you guys want to make sure to have it just because there are some questions like always Rosie is asked about. You know, we have talked to her daughter before. She's doing as well as she can be. Of course, we would love to have her on um, the show. It just isn't happening. But we'll probably have to get her daughter, her daughter back on and other things. But that always happens. There was like the link for, it's a longer link than usual. I'll put it up again guys want to donate but i'm going to be uh, taking a little bit of a break i will be coming back for a short after show just to get more questions so we leave stuff like this thank you guys so much again for subscribing on youtube stitcher itunes apple music listing on spotify appreciate it um give me like five to ten minutes why is siri trying to jump in on this give me about five to ten minutes and uh, we'll be back on for a quick after show and to talk about whatever you want. Thank you guys so much. Again, this show is your show. So you guys made this a great show along with Michael, with your questions being asked, and you guys contributing. And uh, we're going to keep that going and talk more about what we talked about on last uh, Wednesday's after show with Kat Dyson. All right. Be right back. Uh, much love. Till next time, which will be short. Keep it funky.